0: Let's, let's go over what happens on the menstrual cycle as an overview for women and like, what should, so basically the main, the main themes are, you know, um, yeah. we've added, we basically, the, there's a, there's a tracking sheet they do, they fill in every week and we've added one of the clients after hearing you speak um, a few months ago, Prima, she, she created like a, a menstrual, stri- menstrual cycle track in along her oh, macro right. sheet, just to see if she can find patterns. Now, everybody, there's new clients coming in now, so they may be a bit confused as to why they would want to do this, sure. or so, like, Okey what's doke. the benefit to doing this? So yeah, if you, if you just hit it up from a weight loss perspective, what happens over the four weeks of a menstrual a typical cycle, maybe? Okie dokie. So what I will call, I, I hate to use the word
1: normal, maybe just the standard mm. menstrual cycle. Okay, it's, it is just, it is the cycle from one menstruation to the next. We typically treat it as 28 days, although it can vary from 24 to 32 days. Um, depending on the woman, some women show a lot of variability month to month. Some women can set their clock by when, you know, have the same length every month. Um, seems like when women first start, Puberty, when they're very young, things tend to be a little bit less stable and then they tend to get more stable with age, but there are as many different patterns uh, as there are women. So I will treat it as if it were 28 days for convenience, but yours may be a little bit shorter, a little bit longer. Um, The cycle is broadly divided into two halves. Okay, let me back up. Day one of the cycle is the first day of menstruation, the first day of bleeding. And that's just by convention. That's just what everybody treats as day one. Then we have the 28-day cycle split into essentially half, and the halfway point, which we'll call day 14, is ovulation, when the egg is released. So the first half of the cycle, the first two weeks, is called the follicular phase. This is when the follicle, the egg, is developing to be released at ovulation in preparation for presumably pregnancy. Um, Right before ovulation, under a hormonal surge, the follicle explodes, bursts, it's typically described in in the literature, which my imagination, like I'm just imagining that. And I do know some women, probably even listening to this, some women can feel it. Like they can feel when the egg is released. Um, I know even some women can feel when it switches side to side. That happens again at ovulation. The remainder of the follicle, now implants into the endometrium, starts producing progesterone. It's called, it's called the corpus luteum. The second half of the cycle is called the luteal phase, which comes from that. So first half of the cycle, follicular phase, follicle develops, egg is released in ovulation, corpus luteum develops, luteal phase is the second half. So that's the overview. Now hormonally, there is a complicated cycle going on. And this sort of ties in why, with why it can be important to track. So the first half of the cycle, the Dominant hormone is estrogen. Starts very low at day one, kind of sweeps up. It's a big spike about three or four days before ovulation. <laughs> I see a comment in the chat it says yet I can tell which side I'm on. Yeah, it, it's not it's not universal, but it's not uncommon. Um, so estrogen sweeps up and then drops right at ovulation. Progesterone which stays very low in the first half of the cycle. Starts to go up, it's being produced by that corpus luteum. Estrogen, which is down here, also goes up. They had a peak at about day 21, so halfway through that luteal phase, and then they come back down. So that's the overall, sort of the broad cycle, right? 28 days, first 14, estrogen's dominant. Second, 14 days, progesterone, estrogen, sort of sweep up and then sweep back down. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Those hormonal changes can impact literally every aspect of a woman's physiology. And I say that not only including uh, how she handles carbohydrates and fats, metabolic rate, the propensity to store fat, appetite, um, mood, can be impacted by this. And to sort of put it again in very broad terms, the first half of the cycle when estrogen is dominant. I hate to say good and bad because I don't want anybody to think that like either of these are good or bad in any sort of sense other than when we're talking about dieting, fat loss, referring to it in those terms. Estrogen Mm -hmm. tends to do predominantly beneficial things. It decreases inflammation, it increases skeletal muscle remodeling for growth, improves insulin sensitivity, uh, tends to decrease appetite, tends to increase fat burning in skeletal muscle. So really the overall effects of estrogen tend to be very positive in the first half of that cycle. by the same token, in the second half of the cycle, you have two things going on. One is the progesterone's effects are essentially the opposite of, of estrogen. It tends to, it, it doesn't necessarily increase inflammation, but it blocks estrogen's benefits in this regards. Appetite and cravings tend to go up in the second half of the cycle. Uh, it tends to promote fat storage in the lower body, uh, can increase protein breakdown, which can decrease the adaptations from training. So in in the sense of what we're sort of, I guess, interested in, in this context, um, the second half is sort of generally worse. Um, those terms are so loaded. So that's it. So let's yeah. go back again. Um, well, sorry, let me start at the end. <laughs> that fourth week of the cycle, that second half of the luteal phase, as progesterone and estrogen are dropping back to baseline before the next menstruation. Typically, if a woman is gonna experience premenstrual syndrome or premenstrual tension, I guess they call it in some parts of the world, that's typically when it's going to occur. Again, here there's a lot of variability. Some women have a couple days between day 14 and 21, and it goes away on average. If it's going to occur, it's going to be in those last four to five days right before menstruation. And a lot goes on here. And any woman who's on this, who's experienced it, knows that I'm just going to be like touching the tip of the iceberg. You can have mood swings. Uh, cramping tends to start as the body gets prepared to start the period. For some women, it can be physically debilitating, like mm. can't get out of bed. debilitating. Um, coordination may go down. Okay, I see Rachel. Hang on, let me see exactly what this comment is. Four to five this year. Uh, don't leave it, Rachel. I will come back to that because that is probably that is describing something else. But I will come back to that. Um, she asked, she, said she only has four or five cycles during the year. What does that uh, describe? Um, so a lot, but then again, some women don't experience any of that, right? Some women, it's sort of a flat line in terms of strength, performance, mood, any of this. Other women, enormous fluctuations. And a small percentage of women experience what's called premenstrual dysphoric disorder during this last week. And that can be completely debilitating, like physically can't get out of the bed, uh, huge mood swings, some will experience suicidal ideation. A therapist I know who deals with bipolar and things like that, for some of her female patients, they'll take antidepressants for that one week. Because, mm. So that's a very small percentage, but to put it that way trivializes it because the women that experience it, it like I said, it can be completely physically incapacitating and then a larger percentage, less extreme, and then some women don't experience it at all. So that's sort of the broad overview of the cycle. There there can be for for performance changes in terms of exercise performance. This is something there's a lot of debate over. The big, most of the researchers, they conclude, ah, there's no major impact because they're averaging however many women, right? And even if you have 10 women that have a big drop in performance and 10 that, have an increase or no problems. Um, yes, Amy, I'll also come back while I'll talk about birth control as well because that's sort of, depending on what you're on, uh, yeah. Um, I'll try to, I'm, I'm watching these come through, don't let me. Yeah, we'll, yeah. yeah we'll, if, I, lo- we if is- I lose focus. Because, um, yeah. and the reason I like sort of focus on the standard menstrual cycle, all the questions y'all are asking kind of come out of that. This is sort of the mm-hmm. base. Yeah. Um, Uh, Oh, yeah. So performance. So some women don't see big performance changes. Sometimes it depends on the activity, like endurance activities, cycling, running, you often don't see the big differences because they're, they're kind of all submaximal. Like, I don't know if there's any runners in the group or cyclists, but like even when you're tired, you can always go ride, like whether or not you should is where you tend to see it as more high intensity activities, very heavy strength training, where some, but all, but not all women, can see very large scale fluctuations across the cycle. I had a training years ago before I knew about any of this, which just made me part of the problem. Uh, a couple days after menstruation, she would just be unbelievably strong. She would usually hit personal best in the weight room. Second week of the cycle, right before ovulation, she'd be a little bit weaker for whatever reason, not enormously. Ovulation would hit, she'd be a little bit stronger in week three. And then during week four, her performance in the gym just cratered. She, her coordination went out the door. She couldn't do any complex activities. And once I got my head out of my butt and realized what was going on by tracking her pattern, I just started adjusting her training. And what I found is that all she could do in that fourth week was machine work or high repetitions. Yeah even if she wanted to do more, even if I as her coach and as a male who doesn't deal with any of this was like, what's the problem with the weight? Biologically, it was not possible for her. So I said, once I got my head on my rear end and adjusted her training, then I just planned that fourth week as an easy week. And then that would make her ready so that once she started menstruating, by day two or three, she was ready to go. So the reason I'm describing all this is that, you know, Scott's original question is, by tracking this over multiple cycles, you can determine your own response, right? I can talk in averages and that's great, but any two women may show huge amounts of variance. Okay, menopause also. I, real quickly, Claudia asks if you get ovulation cramps, can this also impact performance? Depends on you. Um, I mean, it, it, it can be physically painful and like I said, this is one of those things that I can only speak generally that, yeah, I would expect menstrual cramps to probably not be optimal for performance, but some people can work through it. And if you can't, you can't. And yeah. among other reasons that I bring this up, right, if I'm training a guy, deal feel any of this, he is the same guy who walked in yesterday, the week before the month, he's just going to be the same dude every day. If I'm coaching... I need to pay attention to this so that I know if I need to adjust the training, right? What I did with that one trainee was week one, go heavy. Week two, a little bit lighter. Week three, heavier again. Week four, go play on machines for her. And once I started doing that, not only did her training, her progress improved, but I stopped putting in her position to fail because yeah. I had been basically telling her, I want you to power through this biological impairment in your performance and give you a workout that you physically can't do right now. And that's not fair. (laughs) Whereas I've had other trainees that didn't have that at all. And I didn't have to factor that in. But that became, that came down to monitoring and tracking. And I, as their coach, I need to gauge that. You as an individual trainee can track that yourself. And other things you can look at, mood, hunger, uh, energy levels, blood sugar, blood sugar also in that second half of the cycle, blood sugar levels make it a little bit unstable. Um, also, that's when cravings occur. I think I missed the second half of the cycle. Metabolic rate goes up a little bit, you know, body temperature. You've probably seen you track that if you're trying to get pregnant. But appetite and cravings are typically increased during that time period as well. And in general, women tend, tend to eat Several hundred more calories than their body is increasing via metabolic rate if it's uncontrolled okay. food intake. And just as yeah. an interesting bit of trivia, at least in the US, we've always assumed, ah, chocolate. Chocolate is, is you know, PMS food. But it's very cultural. And in, other, in Spain, they eat savory foods. They eat meat. Because there's a, there's a tendency of like, when you're having that, your mom goes, here, eat this. It'll make you feel better. There's a hmm. cultural component to that.
3: Interesting. Um,
1: but that also goes on the second half of the cycle. So what you can do as an individual trainee is you know, sort of track over a couple cycles to see where all this is following for you as an individual. And what I typically recommend, and this also for coaching, is like for four weeks just do the exact same workout, right? Same sets and reps, same weight in the weight room, whatever your training looks like. And what you want to be looking at is, you know, So-called rating of perceived exertion. How difficult is this compared to last week, compared to the week afterwards, right? So let's say you're doing whatever it is. You're squatting 50 kilos for eight reps, whatever the numbers are. And in the first week of the cycle, you can do it fairly easily. Maybe you could do 10 reps if you really wanted to. In the second week of the cycle, you get to eight and it just feels harder. Well, that tells you that your strength is down a little bit during that week. And then week three, maybe it's a little bit easier. And then week four, maybe you can't do the workout at all. Maybe you can only do five repetitions. Well, that means that for you, that is your personal pattern. That week one is strongest. Week two is a little bit weaker. Week three is a little stronger still. Week four is the weakest. And you can adjust your training as well as having, I guess, realistic expectations are the way to put it, right? There is a tendency, and all trainees do this of you know you want to have good workouts you did this last week why can't i do this today and it depends on the personality some trainees i've had if they don't have an all-time best workout every workout it just shatters them psychologically and others know that the long term is what matters that depends on you but knowing that if you're expecting to go in in week four and have you know the best workout ever and you've established that your personal pattern is that that's not possible for you that can at least act, you know, just every real But then you know that in week one of the next cycle, you'll be ready to go, just plan it in, go have some fun in week four, and then be ready to just go wreck yourself in week one or whatever your individual pattern is.
0: Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And so what would you say so if someone's now, at the end of the day, they're putting in their macros, all the data, what kind of mm-hmm. questions would you say to ask yourself? Are you, You've got the workout part, so you'd obviously write your notes down as you're doing the workout because you would obviously forget otherwise but is there anything else to look out for at the end of the day
1: uh, you know like i said you can look at things like you know overall appetite tends to be most controlled in the first two weeks estrogen tends to to blunt appetite especially right before ovulation women tend to have like the the, the least hunger for for food and drink during that three or four day phase, but the first two weeks the cycle tends to be more. Then that second half of the cycle, you know, pay attention to things like cravings, like blood sugar, and you'll you'll sense that as you know energy lulls, and what tend and that's because of progesterone again is causing that slight insulin resistance. So when you eat carbs, for some people, blood sugar goes up, blood sugar goes down, their energy crashes, they find themselves craving carbs you know, at the candy machine, whatever it is. And they kind of get into this, you know, that, that crazy blood sugar pattern that everyone's experienced. Um, yeah. I think those would probably be the main ones. And you can yeah. make some slight adjustments to diet, like in, in my big crazy women's book. It, since the body, women's bodies handle carbs better in the first half of the cycle. So there's a little logic to having a little bit more carbs, a little bit less dietary fat. And I'm talking huge amounts. In the second half of the cycle because of that those blood sugar regulation issues moderating carbohydrates a little bit and again i'm not talking huge amounts a couple hundred calories a little bit higher more moderate dietary fat seems to help just maintain blood sugar levels maintain energy levels sort of just working within your own individual physiology a um, little bit of fruit can also help during that second half of the cycle just because that tends to help maintain blood sugar but again this, this is very individual to you as, as a woman mm. to try, sort of keep track of this. In this case, you will be your own best coach and your experience will matter way more than what I can say, or your, even your coach can say about the averages.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, well, like, we've got some questions that go through here. So that's a good base on it. So we, should we start with Rachel? So I don't have many periods. I've had around four to five this year. What are my hormone levels okay. likely to look like?
1: Okay, so like I said, the, the standard menstrual cycle is considered, you know, 24 to 32 days, which means there can be, what's that work out to? It's like eight to 12 a year, 10 to 12 a year, something like that. There is a condition called oligomenorrhea, which means infrequent cycles. In oligomenorrhea, you get, a menstrual cycle every 35 to 90 days. So you could conceivably seeing be seeing as few as four. That typically, that can occur for a lot of reasons, but one of the common reasons is something called polycystic ovary syndrome. And this question actually makes a fantastic sort of transition into an extremely common um, menstrual cycle dysfunction in women. Polycystic ovary syndrome is one of the most common reproductive dysfunctions mm-hmm. um scott do you want me to kind of give the overview of that as well because it is a question that comes up a lot it's also frequently misdiagnosed or undiagnosed and a very yeah. large percentage of women experience it and aren't getting the right treatment
0: yeah no 100 i think well i think amy, amy mentioned it yesterday i think amy's on the chat now with the pcos so okay. yeah it'd be good to cover it yeah so people know, okay. What-
1: um, Cause it, like I said, this is really common and a lot of, I think a lot of doctors miss it. Um, so polycystic ovary syndrome actually refers to a number of different conditions and it's diagnosed. Uh, there's three criteria, which is multiple cysts on the ovaries, right? It's polycystic ovaries, that's actually where the name comes from, uh, elevated testosterone levels. And this can be determined by blood work, or there's often sort of characteristic uh, conditions that, that occur in women due to elevated testosterone, which can include um, acne, oily skin, increased body hair, more of a uh, central fat patterning. Testo- basically, a lot of the testosterone effects are sort of having a masculinizing effect. So women often experience sort of what boys going through puberty are going through. So elevated testosterone, and then either Uh, an infrequent menstrual cycle, or there may be uh, no menstrual cycle.
2: Mm.
1: Here's where it gets complicated. PCOS can be diagnosed if you have any any two of those three. So there's actually four different types of PCOS. You can have all three, which is the most extreme. You can have multiple cysts on the ovaries and elevated testosterone, which is also very common. You can have elevated testosterone and menstrual cycle dysfunction, which seems weird. Basically, what it is, you can have polycystic ovary syndrome without having cysts on the ovaries, which is a little yeah. bit confused, but I'll explain. I'll, and then the fourth type is you can have multiple cysts and menstrual cycle dysfunction. That fourth one is the least common. Most forms of PCOS, there is elevated testosterone, and one of its consequences is to uh, cause these things, and frequently to cause this infrequent menstrual cycle. But basically, what they're finding with PCOS is it's not just one thing; it's mm-hmm. it's sort of a cluster of um, different conditions that may uh, manifest slightly differently. Um, I suspect down the road, they might, right now they're just like PCOS type one, two, three, four. Down the road, they might separate these out into completely different things. The key thing is just the realization that there are multiple types. Um, But one of the very common things is those infrequent menstrual cycles. And to answer Rachel's question, what do your hormones look like? Um, Some days of the cycle, they look exactly like the standard menstrual cycle. And other days, it looks completely like random noise, so it's unfortunately not a question that I can answer because that it's everything is kind of so dysregulated and so impacted that they're really that that pattern that's sort of fairly stereotypical the menstrual cycle just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, and what I would add what I would ask you, and you feel free to, to to respond in the chat, is if you have ever been like, or if you show any any of the other things I'm describing in terms of. Boiler skin, acne, increased body hair, uh, central fat patterning—that might suggest polycystic ovary syndrome. That presumably you haven't been diagnosed for.
0: Yeah, Amy. Um, Amy, do you, would you mind coming on cam on, on the video uh, and explain your question and your situation? Hold on. Yeah. Oh, Hello. Hi. <laughs> Hello.
3: Uh, so, firstly, I just want to say to anyone who thinks they might have PCOS, mine took eight years to get diagnosed properly. So. You're not going insane, um, just <laughs> keep going on. I promise you, you'll get there in the end. Um, and also the pill can be used as a kind of masking tool. So a lot of GPs will yes. put you on that and things will seem better for a while, but then your symptoms start creeping back up. So again, you're not crazy. It's just your symptoms are being masked.
1: Yeah, <laughs> nice. And actually just w- without interrupting, I did want to say, the birth control pill reduces testosterone in women which is why they use it as kind of a first-line treatment. But to your point about the masking, a very old friend of mine, she's actually just hit menopause now. She's been on the birth control pill since she was 15. And when she went off, she had this tremendous rebound in side effects and it took several years. She finally found a female physician. And to your point, her PCOS was masked for 35 years by, and as soon as she went off, and of course her, her GP, didn't know what he was looking for. She finally ended up with a female physician who knew what and what blood test store to, 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 to order and was like, yeah, you've had this for 35 years and we have no idea. So Amy, go ahead.
3: That's crazy. Wow. Um, so my question is, so I have to be on the combined pill because I get really bad cystic acne from PCOS. Um, I just wanted to know, would I experience any of those normal kind of hormonal fluctuations throughout my cycle? Because I sometimes do get like the increased hunger or feel the pain around the time I would be ovulating or even just before my period.
1: Um, for the most part, or, you know, combined oral birth control tends to sort of shut down the normal cycle. But in the case of PCOS, I'm honestly not 100% sure if it shuts it down completely. Because it it is sort of, you know, to your point... It's essentially sort of treating this hormonal uh, dysregulation that has occurred. And that's, it also, it very much, oral birth control, the combined pill, there are so many different types. Like, I think I've talked about this uh, before um, with Scott, and it could very much depend on the type you're on. Also, the uh, pattern with which you take it, right? Mm -hmm. Typical birth control is 21 days on, seven days off. Some are... One is 24-4, one is 26-2. In recent years, they've started using it continuously. Uh, do you notice uh, there's also some of them keep hormone levels flat? Some of them sort of spike it up. I don't know if you're it's called a triphasic form of birth control. Um, I don't know which specific type you're on, which might give, I might be able to comment a little bit more.
3: Coherently. I'm on the 21-7-day one. And- okay. I put the, I don't know, the ingredients, the makeup of it in my yeah. question. I can't pronounce them. Um, okay.
1: But, uh, yeah. ethinyl. yeah. And desogestrel. yeah. Um, which, and I don't know. Do you know, uh, are, are the levels of the hormone in there the same the entire time you're on it?
3: I believe so, but I'm not uh, 100% sure.
1: If those are the doses, probably, because if it yeah. were, what they, what they do, the this triphasic form of birth control, they're trying to kind of mimic the standard cycle. So progesterone starts at one level, goes up, and then goes up again to try to sort of mimic okay. the standard cycle. Um, you're on what's called monophasic, where they just stay flat across the whole time, which is probably part of just because it's being used for PCOS. Um, I'd have to look. I, I don't know 100% if in PCOS treatment, like in in, in a normally ovulating woman, if or nor, standard menstrual cycle, if you go on birth control, it basically shuts down the production of your normal hormones. That basically yeah. all flattens out with the exception of Mirena, the hormonal IUD that that's local only. It acts okay. as a birth control, but it doesn't affect blood hormone levels, but all the other ones, a lot of how they work is by they, by shutting down your normal or your regular Hormone levels, the egg doesn't get released, so pregnancy can occur and it sort of shuts all that down. Um, I'll look, I'll have an answer for sure by next time because that is um, around those times. Yeah. Well, okay, so here's the other thing. So you mentioned field pain during your, with the 21-7 pattern, you get what's called withdrawal bleed,
4: right? I mm. mean, when you uh, basically, it's yeah.
1: 21 days on and then they give you a placebo pill or you just go off. And there's a little bit of a hormonal rebound and you get what's called a withdrawal bleed that's not the same as a normal as normal bleeding. And uh, I've got a little bit of interesting trivia I came across that it's interesting but frustrating at the same time. But I think some of it, you're getting a hormonal rebound and because okay. of the PCOS, you may be seeing some kind of, like I said, the hormones just look like noise. Yeah, just, that would make
3: sense actually because I do get pain the week following my period as well. So that's probably the hormones readjusting.
1: Correct. I think that's absolutely it. So there's actually no basis for the 21-7 pattern, physiologically, scientifically. Back when they were developing birth control in like the 50s and 60s, the physicians, who I'm reasonably sure were predominantly male, although I think there were some, some females involved, women involved, felt that women would feel more comfortable if they bled every month. I'm not, I mean, this is, I wish I were joking about this. I now realize it's easy to look back in 1960 and go, oh my God, you know, they knew what they knew. But they thought, and this was, I mean, the pill was such a new thing, right? Even the idea of this, and even by the 70s was so, such a, an out of nowhere. So I, I get that to some degree, is they didn't want it to seem like, but in, re, in, modern, in the modern era, there's actually a lot of argument for just getting rid of that completely. There are some some researchers who are like, it has no basis, the hormonal rebound, there is an increased risk of pregnancy even during that. It doesn't give you as good reproductive protection. It doesn't give you as good physiological in the case of, and they're like, the seven day withdrawal period should be eliminated because there really is no basis for it.
2: So that is
1: actually something, and I can send Scott the paper and he can get it to you, like the the one that talked about this, might be something worth discussing with your primary care physician you might be better off just not having the withdrawal week because you're mm. getting some, some rebound effects.
3: Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Lyle.
0: Good. Um, nice one. Um, Lyle, uh, thanks for that, Amy sharing your experiences yes. as well. I'm sure no it helps worries. everyone here. Uh, question next, we've got Ala. So yes. Ala, do you want to come on and maybe chat? Yeah. That? Yeah. Um,
1: this no. is a good follow. It's a great follow-up question, actually.
4: Yeah. So I was on the pill, combined pill, from like since I was seventeen or eighteen, and then I like, came off of it. I'm twenty-five now, in okay. in April, and okay. like I haven't I haven't had a period since. Like I know they're fake anyway, but you know.
1: <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. I know. I know. I know what you mean. Um. It, yes. Things that like things like this, and and some of it I'm going to sort of uh, infer from what's going on with when men take anabolic steroids, which and and there's they're they're not the same, but there's similarities, right? Yeah. So a man takes anabolic steroids, his body goes, oh, these hormones are here, we can stop producing our own, yeah. and actually the hormonal response is very very similar because a lot of the system is is similar between women and men, just the end result is the same. Now when they go off, it takes the body some time to basically yeah. ramp up normal production. I think it could be you know, up to six weeks, depending. And of course, and men feel absolutely terrible when this is happening, um, because now their testosterone is just crazy. Yeah. I think that does happen with birth control, although I'm a little surprised that it's still um, occurring at the four month mark. Yeah. One thing I would, would ask is, because women can lose their menstrual cycle for a lot of reasons. And a big one can be, uh, Christina, I will get to your question. I do see it there. Um, has anything else changed in terms of your activity, your eating patterns in the time since you came off?
4: Yeah, actually, to be honest. So I started the, obviously, the Octagon Challenge. So I was losing weight and I, and I lost weight and I was doing like, Four, like ten times more exercise than what I was doing before, so um, okay. yeah, activity levels gone up and my eating habits are better. Okay,
1: so that that is a possibility. That one one of the well, so women can lose their menstrual cycle for a ton of different reasons, and. <laughs> Comparatively speaking, like women's bodies are so much more sensitive to stress than men's ever will be. Men can do all kinds of crazy stuff and be fine. And the tiniest (laughs) stresses in women can cause menstrual cycle dysfunction of varying kinds one of these and this was something that you know started to show up in the 80s when women were starting to enter sport in a significant degree and they started seeing all these menstrual cycle dysfunctions loss of the menstrual cycle especially in sports like running ballet gymnastics what they called the thinness sports the ones where yeah. basically women have to maintain these scary low body weights and they train 8 hours a day and eat an apple stuff like those kind of yeah. really unhealthy activities and what it turns out is that if, if the imbalance between activity and food intake is too high, that can cause women's bodies to essentially shut down reproductive function. And I'm not saying that's it. Yeah. But I'm saying that it is a real common occurrence. And it's possible yeah. that that's delaying recovery kind of coming out of being on the pill. And I'm speculating about this somewhat. Yeah. Um, when is the challenge over?
4: Oh well, it is over now, but I'm like with the ter- well with the I'm still with live like Louise at the moment anyway so okay yeah I- I'm still doing the
0: same thing like, I- I like, what's your thing. what's your training volume now going forward as you gonna say? Are you, did you do the running uh
4: no, i didn't do any running, not even for the octagon I was doing just <laughs> the... I was doing the lives and the strengths, um so I think I was working out like five or six times a week um mm-hmm. And I'm about doing pretty much the kind of the same thing now. Still okay.
1: So I did, a, I did a quick look just because this is from mayoclinic.org. They say your period typically resumes within three months after you stop taking the pill. Some women, especially those who took the pill to regulate their met, may not have a period for several months. Is not three or several? I mean, that's okay. <laughs> What, sorry, I'm the board games. Uh, it does say if you don't have a period within three months, take a pregnancy test to make sure and then see your doctor. There is something, and I don't know if this is related, but I do I do think when women lose their menstrual cycle due to training and eating, there seems to be like the longer they've lost it for, the longer it takes to come back. You know, when I was reading, researching the women, they sort of threw this idea out. It was like there was some sort of memory for lack of a better word that like their word not mine there seems to be a relationship and it does make me wonder if you've been on combined birth control since you were 14
4: uh no uh seven yeah 17 yeah still it was like six years six years yeah
1: still quite yeah an extended period of time that that might again this is kind of speculating out out of out of my rear end on this one that might be causing it i would certainly say like once you know, so once you sort of are at maintenance where you're, you know, no longer actively losing fat or, you know, your are training, your food intake comes back up. You know, yeah. if you haven't, if you don't regain it, I'd say by the six month mark, I think it's worth going to get, you know, a checkup. Because okay. to me, that would suggest that something is is very wrong. Um, yeah. Or you may just, have you, well, have you noticed anything? If you noticed spotting any of the menstrual cycle, some of the... Uh, Affect, um, for lack of a better word, noticing in terms of appetite, mood swings—like—are you noticing any of that?
4: Um, well, there was one time when I thought I was going to start, and then it didn't. Um, so that—that okay. that was one, the one time in the last like four months. And okay, well, my moods are better, but I don't know if it's because of okay. exercise or like I don't know if I don't know if it's a combination of all all of that
1: so yeah there, there's also with women as again as they get older a lot of this frequently sort of stabilizes compared to when you are are right after puberty um yeah as well so it could be that like i said i it could be a lot of different things but i do think that coming off right as you were starting a pretty heavy training load is yeah probably part of it yeah but certainly once you've adapted to the training and and or brought your calories up to kind of reach maintenance if it's not yeah. back within a couple more months i think it's worth getting checks to be be 100 percent sure
4: yeah cool yeah that's what i thought i did think it might be the activity levels that were affecting it so i'll just yeah. wait a couple more months and then go to the gp but yeah thank you
1: okay yes absolutely
4: um
0: well, so christina go ahead what is what is christine she's your biggest fan low um okay Fellow American, Christine, where are you? You off the camera? She's not gone. She gone.
1: Actually, yeah, I don't see her in the participants list.
0: Oh, she'll be back. I'm sure.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Her name is her name is isn't blued out, so I can't click it. All right, so she'll move back. on. So this, okay, uh, this is Les. from Less.
0: Less, yeah. Um. um
5: It's it's Leslie. Leslie. Okay, just make
1: sure sure I'm pronouncing it right.
5: Yeah. Um, So you actually partially answered my question. I wrote it before you started talking about the fluctuations, but I've noticed that basically like the third week before the fourth week, you would have the period ravenous, not hungry, but ravenous. It's almost like an anxiety. So I think you have touched on it that whether it's blood sugar or whatever it is, but- I've mentioned it to um, my primary care physician, and she just sort of listened, but we've never done anything about it. But it made me think when you were talking about the antidepressants, like there's got to be something that can be done, or or the eating something because it blows my entire month forth when you have a week of eating pizza and drinking wine, and you like I've gotten (laughs) it's like rat poison that there are times that I'm like I'm not even hungry, but I keep eating, I keep eating, I keep eating. It's crazy. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so some of what's going on with that, like I said, that, that fourth week of the cycle, the week right before, before the period, when, when progesterone and estrogen are dropping, um, there's a humongous change in women's brain chemistry that is driving a good bit of this. Uh, one is that dopamine levels, dopamine's a reward hormone, starts falling. So things that are typically rewarding, whether it's food, whatever, tends to be more rewarding. And I suspect, like, have you ever noticed that once you have that first taste of something, it just drives you to eat more?
5: Yes, but in like normal times, um, you know, like they always say that like the first three bites, the best three bites. So like three out of the four weeks, I can have those three bites and go, you know, by the fourth bite, like, it's not, it's satisfying. And then I can recognize like I'm bored or like it's then like if emotional eating, I can talk myself through that. Whereas yes. with this, I'm like, I don't even care. I'll, in fact, I'm gonna order right. another pizza, and yeah. it's and I'm literally like, what is happening right now? And it goes on for five days. Have you and he considered... has ordered a pizza before this call? So the perfect, <laughs> you... the timing is perfect. <laughs> We're in crisis <laughs> as we speak.
1: <laughs> Have you considered powerlifting? Sorry, moving on. Because uh, yeah, exactly. that's yes, perfect. That's that's the perfect eating pattern. So part of it is that rewarding stuff will be more rewarding. But what you're really describing it's sort of that that loss of self-regulation right you actually described it very vividly in the sense of the behaviors you're able to sort of control in the other three weeks it's just sort of a loss of control and that has to do with serotonin levels, which also drop now serotonin is a really odd neurochemical we tend to think of it as being relaxing uh sleep inducing and things of that nature but what it really mainly does is it is a regulatory hormone. So one of the really interesting things I was researching a different project years ago is that low serotonin levels are, depre- are associated with depression, mania, hostility, violence, all these unrelated behaviors. And the reason is because when serotonin levels are normal, they allow you to not to do those things. Serotonin helps you control those behaviors. When serotonin drops, it doesn't cause those things. But it allows them to occur more easily and that that is i mean just the way you phrased it in the sense of you can do it the other three weeks and have the few pieces of pizza stop you have sort of a psychological self-control for lack of a better way of putting it that goes away in week four and this is also where and i'm going to be very careful in my wording (laughs) um during that fourth week women often experience mood swings, what they call in the research, emotional lability, which just means that moods can kind of be up and down and up and down, I'll simply leave it at that. And that's also a serotonin thing. It's just simply, this is what happens. So in that sense, like in extreme cases, they'll use antidepressants, like I already mentioned. Because again, if someone is prone to suicidal thoughts, when their serotonin levels drop, they will come to the forefront because they can no longer sort of keep Mm. control over them, for lack of a better Mm -hmm. way of putting it. So that's part of that. Like all these things are related to that same, and it's just whatever your primary sort of psychological, whatever's going on, it's going to be more likely to come to the forefront and you're going to be less likely to be able to control it. So in that sense, raising serotonin levels would certainly help. Now, carbohydrates do that, but that sort of defeats the purpose, right? Right. Self-medicating carbohydrates, which is what a lot of people do when they're depressed, what I did when I was depressed, because until you've eaten six bag uh, six bagels, an entire bag of bagels, and gone back for more, like that's you know that's that's a depression thing <laughs> right there. And then some jelly yeah. just to, just to top it off. Oh yeah, no, I know exactly what you're describing. <clears throat> and once you start, there is no stopping. Yeah, so that's sort of a self self defeating approach. This is one of those things that there are supplements that will raise serotonin levels. Um, 5-HTP, 5-hydroxy-tryptophan is one. Um, Tryptophan, which is an amino acid, uh, is also, and basically 5-HTP, 5-hydroxy-tryptophan is converted to tryptophan, which is converted to serotonin in the brain. And just more trivia, tryptophan is a great sleep supplement. People used it in the 70s forever. And then a contaminated batch came out of Japan Bunch of people got sick, and in the U.S. the FDA banned it for about forty years. Wow! Even though it was comp- basically, they decided that tryptophan itself—it's like it is an amino acid that is found in any protein that you eat—it's because a contaminated batch came out.
5: It is now. They just available. want us to eat more turkey Thanksgiving.
2: Yeah,
1: I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, but it was really a weird thing. They made ones, and once they made up their mind, they were never going to. It took forty years for them to to finally eliminate that. Um, so. It is possible in some countries, at least, to get tryptophan again. And I'd have to let me I'll have to look up the dosing. Um, there are also there used to be some specific high tryptophan protein powders that would help with that. 5-HTP as a dietary supplement is also something worth considering.
5: And do you take it during that moment, or does it have to be something that you do for the whole like four weeks?
1: Yeah, uh, no, just do it during that week, and I okay. would do it proactively. Um, yep. Would be that you know once, assuming you have like a pretty good idea of when ovulation is or roughly when it's starting, um, you would go ahead and, and take it proactively uh, throughout the day. Let me look up what the is. Awesome. Well, um,
5: thank obviously. you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah,
1: and and is again, it's it's. It's very real, there is, there is a tendency in some groups to be like, ah, dismiss it and PMS is an excuse and this, that and the other. And usually, and, and women that don't experience it often can't understand what the issue is because they've never experienced it. And of like, course, men, we're totally clueless. Like yeah. we, I, even before I started the women's book, I had experienced it observationally, but that's about where it started and stopped for me. Um, until I, but it is, there is an absolute biology to it. Um, oh, good grief. Let me go somewhere else. Like, uh, where'd
0: you get your, where are you? Uh, do you think examine.com is a good resource for?
1: Actually, yeah, that's, that's where I am right now. Oh, is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> Quite honestly, um, they tend to be very scientifically based, I think they use a little more animal research than I'm personally happy with, but that's kind of neither here nor there. Um, but they do still get very much, they look at the research and I, I trust them more than, than not. Um, they state a typical dose of five HTPs in the range of, excuse me, 300 to 500 milligrams, taken either once daily or in divided doses. For what you're describing, I would probably split it, You know, take some first thing in the morning, lunch, bedtime will probably help you sleep. Um, I think it's worth at least considering.
5: Thank you so much. I will. I really appreciate Absolutely. that. No, Thanks everybody for
1: listening. Okay. So that was that one. And then actually the next. Uh, Vanessa. I already, okay. Contraceptive pal. I, I do want to, I want to come back to Vanessa. There was one more question about um, heavy periods. This was from, I'm going to get that wrong. Kashika. Did I get anywhere close to that?
6: You did. It wasn't that bad. It's Kashika.
1: Okay, well, good. Um, I just want to make sure I have her. So her question, I'm on the contraceptive pill for heavy periods. I've been on it for four years. I'm scared to come off due to heavy periods, but I'm also 41. That one's, once you get into stuff like that, it's a little bit outside me. I don't yeah. know that it will hurt because, again, a lot of these things do change throughout the lifespan yeah. for women. You know, I'm sure all of y'all, depending, you know, what you experienced during your teens, probably different during your twenties as women get older and start approaching, you know, the menopausal transition. And that's the next question that I I do want to get, because I know I skipped that one briefly, but I'll come back to it. Hormones start to change still. Um, There's something they talk about in research called uh, reproductive age. And this is different than biological age, right? So let's say you start puberty, you start menstruating when you're 12. At the time you're 24 years old, you're obviously, your biological age is 24. Your reproductive age is 10. Yeah, That's the number of years you've been actively menstruating. Once women get to 14 years of reproductive age, a lot of her menstrual cycle becomes more stable. Women are much less sensitive to some of the eating stuff we talked about as far as losing yeah. menstrual cycle. So so it is possible that now later in life, beyond that, I can't really say. Um Sure. If um, you do, I would yeah. love, I would love to find out. Um, what, like I would love to find out if it does or if it's if it if it's become more self-regulated. But some women just have a heavier flow; they yeah. develop a thicker endometrium, they shed more, they bleed more, which also, on top of everything else, predisposes them becoming anemic more easily because they're losing more iron every month. Um, on top of whatever you may have been. Was there ever a medical diagnosis as far as like endometriosis or anything that was causing the heavy flow that they knew of?
6: No, well, this was it. I had many tests and then um, I had my daughter. So I gave birth, I've actually been on the contraceptive pill, it's actually, I've worked actually, it's been seven years now. And then after I stopped breastfeeding, um, after about nine, nine months, the periods returned very, very heavy for about 24 months. Um, okay. They said I had a couple of cysts, and I, then I went for tests okay. and um, scans for about 12 months, um, and they disappeared after that. But the heavy periods continued, and it okay. got to a stage where it was just so uncomfortable. I really wasn't able to leave the house. It was just gotcha. clotting. Um, they gave me some um, tablets to stop the flow, to stop the um, clotting, but. I was okay. taking so many tablets within that right. period of five days that my digestive system was ruined. And I just, I went for the pill in a way. It was an easier option because I was having a stressful job where I was commuting for two hours every day on the train. Oh, so it was an easy way out and I've just right. continued with it. And this is where I am now. And, um, suffering from hair loss, which might be something totally different, I've had all my tests and everything done, and few people have said to me, is it possibly for the for the hormones in the pill that your hair loss might be happening as well? So I've, I've got lots of questions, and I'm really right. new to all of this, so yeah.
1: Um. Um, the hair loss is interesting, and I would sort of ask the same question, Did is that a recent occurrence since you've gotten into... Uh, some of the challenges or change your eating or exercise habits
6: no it's been since okay. my daughter was born so it's been going on okay. for about six years, six years and it's it's pretty much when i started to get on the contraceptive pill really
1: okay um, um i mean a lot of thing and again once you start getting the pregnancy this is it's too far out of my wheelhouse that i, yeah. I didn't really delve into that in my book because it just wasn't a it's not in my wheelhouse and b it's something i felt very uncomfortable in the sense of the last thing I want to do is give someone some sort of advice, no matter how well reasoned, that could potentially impact on pregnancy for their child. It was was something I just didn't feel comfortable touching. But there are a lot of things that can change, some of them seemingly permanently. It it sounds like something might have happened hormonally, but it's really interesting that you mentioned the multiple cysts. And it almost makes me wonder, and maybe um, if Amy wants to chime back in, if it's not worth if it's not worth getting checked because women with PCOS a may not show the increased body fat. Some you can there's a lean type of PCOS. You did have multiple cysts. It can certainly affect menstrual cycle function in any direction. Like I almost wonder if it's not worth at least for no other reason than eliminating that, right? Because yeah. frequently that's just as a lot of these diagnoses for women is we tested everything else and we still don't know. So we're gonna go with this one, just sort of, because we don't know any better. Amy, do you have any thoughts about that as far as the possible PCOS?
3: Um, Yeah, it's a tough one. Like you say, it's just a process of elimination over a long period of time, which is really frustrating. Um, But you know your body best if you feel like that is a possible cause or explanation then it's definitely valid and you should definitely explore it um, oh, yeah, in right. terms, in terms of um, weight gain, weight loss. I didn't really gain a lot of weight in my teen years, um, but I definitely had ir- very irregular periods. Um, yep. I had a lot of acne though. Um, yeah. That was kind of what yeah. got my mom thinking there was something not quite right. Um, and also kind of severe pains on my one ovary as well. Yeah. Um, so, but then that was diagnosed as uh, an, an, I can't say a word, um, the one where, that one. Yeah. And then yeah. also the doctor also found out I'm iron deficient as well. So just a combination of that for many years. And then eventually we got to the point of it saying the doctor saying, yeah, no, you've got P cause your testosterone is like this, your cortisol is like this, all those yeah. other kinds of things. And then just monitoring those levels over, I think it was a period of six months. Yeah. Um, and then drawing a conclusion from that.
6: Okay. Thank you guys. I think you've yep. you know you've given me the push to explore this further. So I'll definitely keep you updated, most definitely.
0: Hundred percent. Thank you. Thank you for coming on and asking that question as well. Yeah, and Thank you
1: guys. and like I said, if you do happen, if you do go off, I'll be just I would like to, I would I would love to hear back and just know just if definitely. you notice that it does or doesn't, just because I'd be really yep. curious to
6: I will do. Um, Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening, absolutely. everybody.
0: Thank you. All right, so let me go back up to, this was um, Vanessa. Um, Vanessa, do you wanna get Vanessa, do you wanna come on and here you are,
7: boom. Hi, um, hi Lyle. Um,
8: Yeah, Yeah. I just asked, there's quite a few of us on here who are in our late 40s, early 50s. And so obviously we're sort of menopause age. But we've all said it seems to take a lot longer to lose weight, even though some of us are on HRT, so we know we're not estrogen deficient. So I just wondered if there's a reason why it, I mean, I used to be able to lose weight really quickly as soon as I tur- you know, got into my fifties, it like, no, it's really slow. So I just wondered if there's a why, and also, is there any kind of training that we can do to speed that up? Yeah, yeah, just... up this? yeah.
6: I've left that.
0: Hello. Hello. Okay. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. So, yes, so, let me just sort of briefly, um, sort of an overview of menopause right? Because again, this is something men don't deal with this. Men just are the same guy from the time they're 15 till 70, basically. Um, Women throughout the lifespan, their hormones change vastly from puberty, stays about the same. And then at menopause, essentially, women's reproductive system is sort of shutting down. When there's no more viable eggs, excuse me, um, basically, like I said, the whole system shuts down. There's something called perimenopause which is the first sort of three to four years where are just kind of starting to wind down basically. And women start, hormones, it's different in early and late and it's super complicated, but women may get infrequent periods. Things are starting to change. They might start to experience some of the symptoms, hot flashes, thing of that nature, which is due to low estrogen levels. Um, and then once a woman of that age and menopause can occur anywhere in the, between 40 and 50. Like we typically think of it as 50-ish, but it can occur very much, much earlier. Once a woman has not had a cycle for one year straight, she is considered to have entered menopause. And at this point, essentially her estrogen levels are not zero, but they're extremely low. Uh, Her progesterone levels are, I do close to zero because we don't have the corpus luteum producing progesterone because there's no menstrual cycle. And estrogen deficiency causes a tremendous number of things, most of them bad. Um, You get hot flashes. There's frequently an increase in body weight, increase in body fat percentage, which frequently a shift in body fat patterning from sort of the, the standard lower body, hip, and thigh frequently women will get sort of a more central that fat around the midsection. Um, And that's just like, if if you go Google, it's called the climacteric, which I don't know when they adopted that word. That describes the cluster of symptoms that occur at menopause. And there's like a hundred of them, possibly. There's just a staggering number. There can be uh, not neurological issues, but frequently brain function is just not as good. Um, some of the women listening to this, or you may remember when in the fourth week of the cycle when estrogen drops, women will lose their words is how I've heard it being described. Things just don't work as well when estrogen is low. Um, there can be sexual dysfunction in terms of lubrication. There can be vaginal atrophy, like a lot. And HRT, which is hormone replacement therapy, which is a synthetic form of estrogen and progesterone, depending, there's a lot of different types of this, replaces that. That's sort of the long and the short of it. And there are, without I mean, without getting into the HRT debate, there's a lot of controversy over it. Some of it came out of earlier work. I will only say that I think, in the aggregate, the benefits probably outweigh the negatives, except for women who have a history or a risk of breast cancer. That is the population that going on HRT can increase the risk of that. Bone mineral density, like I said, there's just a host of things that HRT tends to fix. Um, when, So let me back up and just ask you a couple questions. So were you put on hormone replacement fairly early as you were after um, menopause? Did they
8: wait? No, I was put on it about when I was 50, so about three years ago. But I've, I've had a hysterectomy, but I have my ovaries. So I don't need progesterone
1: because I have no. Oh, okay, so it's just estrogen only. Okay. Mm. Um, which is less common, but certainly is a thing in the case of, of a partial hysterectomy that you want estrogen hrt um estrogen only. um so you didn't see any of the like change in fat patterning sort of a shift from lower yes. body to upper body yes i you definitely did, did, definitely not. did.
8: yeah okay. uh, <laughs> fat suddenly went above my bra line where i'd never had it before
1: yes and that is just sort of a, a common occurrence um just due to these changing hormones i'm a little surprised that it occurred uh since you went on HRT, that not say early... so, No,
8: prior to HRT, probably. Oh,
1: got it, got it, got it. Yes.
8: Yeah. And then just didn't go back. Okay, But that even, is... you know, with being an, on HRT, it's harder to lose, uh, you know, and I say yes. a few of us who have talked about this, it seems to be much harder. You know, every pound is really hard fought for.
1: Yes. And there's a couple things. Is that part of it, there's just an aging effect in that there is a slowing of metabolic rate with age for everybody. It tends to be a little bit faster postmenopausally. It's certainly faster without hormone replacement than with it. And it's not enormous. Um, you know, on a per year, you know, it might be 100 calories a decade. But there is a big issue in terms of activity. Um, that's a lot of it, is estrogen levels are low. We just move around, women move around, we move women move around less. <laughs> we, come on, Lyle. Um, but being on HRT, I wouldn't expect that to be the case, uh, that your general daily activity is low so much. Um, there was, there is some, like there are changes in fat cells where body fat just doesn't sort of mobilize as quickly. I think, hang on, I know I talk about this in women's women's book. I have wrote it so long ago, I have to frequently refer to it. But I know I talked about
8: this. So is strength training better than for mobilizing my fat?
1: Um, No, strength training is critical for bone mineral density and to prevent. There's very much an age-related muscle loss that can be devastating. Um, However, from a calorie expenditure thing, cardio still sort of wins. And let me. um, No, no, nope. Hang on.
2: What
1: am I doing here oh my good good grief Aspirin, import, it's
7: no fun getting old
0: yeah no i
1: I turned fifty this year i'm I don't disagree. Um, <laughs> but certainly, like I said, men men don't even remotely f- face uh, any of this. Um, oh, did I take this out of the book? Oh, might have, there's a change in women's, uh, in post-menopause, there's a change in fat cells that makes fat mobilization more difficult. And I would have sworn well, it's going to bug me if I can't find this. That basically even, I think it was aspirin actually reversed it. It, it was, I can't possibly take it inside the book. Because um, I didn't take anything out of this
4: book. Uh, uh.
1: Or maybe I did. I will find it before next time, but it, it does get more just because activity is generally lower. Uh, there, there are changes in the fat cells that make it more difficult and you might have to find, you know, uh, there's also, I mean, let's just face it. There's what's going on in the world right now. Everyone I've talked to, like our activities in general are way reduced significantly. That's certainly not helping. Uh, in, in Coronaville. But yeah, there are biological changes that occur, and it does, just because, lo- but a lot of it does seem to just be activity levels, tends to be lower. So finding ways to increase even even neat levels, uh, which I'm, I'm 100% sure Scott talks about relentlessly, you know, outside of formal exercise, just to increase energy expenditure. And, and certainly cardio, well, neither of them burn a tremendous, they both burn a depressingly low number of calories given the, the energy expenditure unless you're really well trained. Um, cardio burns, aerobic activity burns proportionally more than weight training, but really finding ways to increase just general daily activity trumps both of them. You know? okay. If you can increase day, even activity, you know, across a, gen, a work day by you know, a calorie a minute from seated to whatever, a standing or walking desk, like that will be, you know, 500 calories extra a day without walking desk. Scott,
2: <laughs> you stand Scott on desk. Desk.
1: yeah, like little, little things like that. And, and a lot of researchers now are like, this, this is the solution, right? Formal exercise for most people has failed because it's not fun for people to do. And the number of calories burned, it's like, however, if you can get them to increase need activities. They burn not only more calories than informal activity; they do without noticing it because it's just part of their daily activity. Okay. Um, and then I will track down. I'm really annoyed that I can't find this right now. Uh, I might have moved it to what will eventually be volume two, but I will find it. Um, hey, thank you. Whatever this changes. Thank
0: happens. you, Vanessa. We'll have to come up with some creative ways to get you neat up. So we'll, we'll, we will. It's tough out. right
1: now. I mean, yeah. it was hard. It was hard enough before. The world got shut down, but it's just everybody I talked to, you know, living in front of the computer even more than they did. So it's it's much, much, much more difficult.
0: Yeah, well, thanks, Vanessa. Um, let's look, where we know? Let me just check like, where we are at on the things. I think we're, at, we're down to Claudia. If you get ovulation cramps, can this also impact performance? I know you've answered that one, haven't you?
1: Um, um, yes, and it is it just to you know, and even that's when we talk about the performance issue, like, world records at the Olympics have been set in every phase of the cycle by female athletes. So mm-hmm. while there tend to be like, I would say, more often than not, if there's going to be a bad week, it's going to be, you know, the fourth week of the cycle. Many women start cramping them. Uh, I had this misconception, because I'm a dumb boy until a friend of mine explained it to me why I was being an idiot. We tend to think of cramping as occurring during PMS, but it's typically more, it's more common in the first week of the cycle because what's happening is the body is, there's muscular contractions to shed the endometrium, the endometrial lining, that's, that's where the, the bleeding is coming from. But it may start earlier than that. It may yeah. impact performance for you. Like I said, I was like, oh, I thought it occurred during PMS week. They're like, nope. Is that a dog I see? I can't point. I, I yeah. see someone, this is Nikki. I saw you smiling, is there a dog in your lap or a cat? <laughs>
8: <laughs> no, what, me, what, you saw me laughing? Yeah, no, I saw I'm... you
1: smile, Look like, like something jumping in your lap. Yeah,
8: I'll tell you what it is. I'm very much on Vanessa's camp and she was kind of speaking on behalf of me as well. Okay. And, gotcha. um, okay do. Uh, we were just basically summing up what you said that basically we don't stand a chance. <laughs> We've got a well, long way to get a spot. You need to sort something no, out here yeah. because me it, and
4: Leslie help. Yes, <laughs> it
1: is. I mean, it, it is, it will be more difficult, but they're, you know, masters athletes. It, it really just, a lot of it will be finding ways to increase daily activity.
8: Yeah, but no, it, absolutely. It, 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 is it harder?
1: Absolutely. I, would I mean, I, if you, I said, said it
8: wasn't. Yeah, you said I've had a dog on my lap. I did actually get a dog, which has massively helped. So I'm actually exercising a lot more. But oh, obviously God, yes. we still need to, Scott, we need something special here. Come on, you can put hey, it on the what, Hey, look,
0: look what I'm doing right now. I'm standing up on my standing desk. You're sitting That's down. what Vanessa I mean... just
2: messaged me. She said I've got to get a standing desk.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're going to be standing here for hours and I'm going to be burning, you know, a okay. lot more calories. Yeah. Well, yeah. you got
1: no, kidneys, you're it, it does, those little things really do add up. Um, what I was gonna say about the cramping, so I said it may it or may not affect impact performance. For women that experience very heavy cramping, uh, your basic non steroid your, your basic painkillers, um, you know, here we ibuprofen, we use aspirin, naproxen. I think it's called paracetamol over in other countries. I don't know. Y'all call it everything different than we do. But for a majority of women, even taking that will help alleviate a lot of uh, the cramping pain. Um, and then there's some percentage of women that it doesn't work for. And I don't know why. The researchers don't know why. Just sorry. <laughs> it's too bad. Um, but that, that can certainly help if it is negatively impacting, you know, daily life or your training.
0: Um, all right. Where, there's so, a question. Ha- happy. Are you? Yes. Is, are you still so in here? Happy? Do you want to come on the mic? or? Let's see. You, uh... Hello. Oh, yeah. Hello. How are you, how you doing?
2: I'm okay. How are you?
0: Yeah, good, good. Have you got a good question Howdy. here?
2: For... <laughs> oh, hi, Dr. Lyle. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Lyle. We'll call you Dr. Lyle since you seem yeah, to um, fix every, fix us. Um, yeah, yeah, so I've been on the depot shot for eight years um, and yes. I remember your chat a, f- a few months ago when you said people who are on the de- depot shot just want to eat and it's you guys really struggle to lose weight. I completely yeah. agree with you, but uh, with the Octagon Challenge, I've managed to lose a stone, but I'm okay. in a limbo whether I should come off this or if I should go on to something else. The reason why I started it was because I used to get heavy periods. So I just wanted to get rid of it completely and just thought, yeah, I just not wanted it at all. So I've enjoyed eight years of my life of not having a period. And now obviously joining this challenge, I've seen how it impacts the way you train and stuff. So I just want some advice on what I should do.
1: Yeah. So now, um, I didn't really get into details about birth control because that alone could take an hour. It's so brutally complicated. Of all of them, because the Depo-Provera is a shot that is put in the back of the arm once every three months. It is a very old, It's they, they created it in the 70s, it's a very high-potency synthetic form of progesterone. And it sort of does the same things as most types of birth control in terms of like shutting down the normal hormonal cycles, egg isn't released, and of all forms of birth control, it is the worst in terms of its side effect profile. It is, it causes the most average weight gain. It, something like doubles the risk of of becoming obese. It has a significantly worse effect for women that are already carrying more body fat to begin with, it can cause bone mineral density loss, which may, they haven't unfortunately, they study to see if, if heavyweight training can prevent that even on depot. Sometimes it does, and so, depending on the situation. Um, really, I, it seems like the main benefit of depot, the main reason they use it is because it's easy. It's one shot every three months, fire and forget. You don't have to, with the pill, there can be an issue. Women forget to take them if you travel. We to take them with you. Has to be taken the same time every day. The, the pill is kind of a headache or can be. They try to develop these other methods. There's the patch, which you put on your shoulder once a week, which is just goes through the skin. There's the cervical ring, which is once a week, three weeks on uh, Depo. There's something called Implanon or Nexplanon. They've changed it. It's a little implant. Minor surgery, back of the arm, releases hormones for three years of birth control. Yeah, birth. I was
2: thinking about getting that one, like changing uh, it over to yeah. that.
1: Yeah, it doesn't have nearly any of the negative effects. Um, There's also uh, Mirena, the hormonal IUD, or at least that's what they call it over in in the US. So IUD is just a copper, a little copper T that they insert that acts as a barrier method. Mirena is a hormonal IUD that also releases progesterone, synthetic progesterone, but it's only within the uterus. None of it gets into the bloodstream. But it does, in most women over time, it does decrease cramping, it does decrease blood flow. Um, it, they've all got pros and cons, but of all of them, DEPA is the one that I, and I don't know, I don't know why 50 years later, nobody has figured out a way to develop something that works the same way without all the negative side effects. I'm baffled by this. Researchers try to find new forms of birth control all the time. And this one, eh, been using this since 1970. It's good enough. Um, it's
0: because it's men, she, isn't it? Like, men are the ones I, yeah, that are. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, like,
1: I, 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 to a first approximation, there is much truth to this. Mm. I would even uh, offer, okay, so in menopause, hormone replacement, the synthetic form of estrogen that's most commonly used is called premer, premarin, which is just, they named it that because what it is, it's horse estrogen. It's equine estrogen. I don't know why they use this for hormone replacement therapy post i don't know why they picked it probably because it was available or maybe it's i don't know but why they're still using it 50 plus years later i have absolutely no idea i have to think that someone could have you know put their minds to it and found something different and there are we've also got the bioidentical hormones which are starting to I predict, and I will get back to your question of, of Depot. I'm just off of one of my random tangents. I predict that five or 10 years from now, bioidentical hormone replacement will be much more common. The research that's available shows that it's at least as good and maybe have slightly lower risk associated with it. And in sort of, there's a logic to it that putting the same form of estrogen that a woman's bodily, body normally produces, that using that for treatment, there's a certain logic that that would probably be better than a synthetic. We'll see. I suspect that's where the research will go. And the problem is there, they can't make a bioavailable form of progesterone yet. Um, so that'll get worked out eventually. Anyway, so back to Depo. Yeah, Depo is some nasty, nasty stuff. And it is interesting, and I mentioned this I think in the last one, Is that, so you know I mentioned that women's metabolic rate goes up a little bit in the second half of the cycle. It's not much. It's a few percent. DEFO seems to increase metabolic rate like that. So we get the question, why does it cause so much weight gain? And it's because high doses of progesterone, just like in the second half of the cycle, drive cravings, drive appetite, drive food intake. And it is a biological driver, and it's really easy to go, oh, just just control it, just show willpower, or whatever, which is sort of a cop out, and it's a very circular kind of cop out answer. But it is certainly having that effect. And the others, implant, on or an one I forget which one they. They started with one, and then they redeveloped it, and they renamed it. But they're the same little plastic insert. Um, like I said, that would give you three years without a period. Minor inpatient surgery. Uh, if you decided to take it out, you know, assuming you down the road decided you wanted to become pregnant or for whatever reason, minor surgery. Um, but it's very, you know, uh, the hormonal IUD. I think it's five years. I don't know off the top of my head if it will handle the bleeding. It certainly will handle cramping. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you sort of said it yourself. Uh, over eight years of put on uh, four stone, which I had to look up, which is. Uh, what is that in metric?
0: 25 14. kilos.
1: Is that close to it? 14 times four is 56 pounds. About 25 kilos? Is that in yeah. range? Yeah,
0: on the, on, the, um, on the dot.
1: And that's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's significant uh, over, over an eight year span. So I do absolutely, and I do realize that once you go off of it, because Depo, the way it's stored in the body, it takes forever to clear. Some women report that like a year later, they still haven't seen a normalization of their menstrual cycle. So just mm-hmm. be, be forewarned that it may take a little while. And I don't know if they can go ahead and put the other one or whatever else you choose, if they can switch to that sooner, but realize that there may still be some, some residual effects. Um,
4: yeah. Yeah, that does um, make sense
2: because I, I find I do, see once I've had my shot, I find out I feel like a puffer fish. I retain so much water, I just, like, blow up. Yeah. And then, yeah. like, a week or two later, that's it, my water retention goes back down. But it's, yeah, I think it's probably time to, to change it to something else, especially when I'm training, you know? I, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's um yeah, like I said it's it's the one and I it's my Facebook group. I've got a, an excellent OBGYN. She handles all the medical stuff that is outside. And she's the same way. She's like Depo should be taken off the market. Like not all women have the negative response. But when women have a negative response, it's profound. And she's like, yeah, the stuff is terrible. It should not be used and taken off. But it's just it's convenient just cuz it's one jab every 3 months. Um mm-hmm. And then there was a follow-up. Did that? Did that answer? Uh, yeah,
2: that did. Thank you so happy? much.
1: Okay, Thank absolutely. You. Um, something related, which I might have touched on. This is from Claudia. It says I'm on the Morena, the Mirena IUD, and as I said, it doesn't affect a woman's hormonal cycling. It, it's purely local um, to prevent. The barrier method again to prevent sperm from getting the egg, but it also thickens the lining, so the sperm has trouble getting getting to it. But you will still so that show the same hormonal cycles, uh, which may or may not impact everything I've talked about: energy, appetite, mood, coordination, etc. Uh, but Morena does not uh, alter that.
0: Yeah, there's a um, question, Kim. Yeah, on the PCOS thing, should you? Dr. Lyle, well, in, in terms of um, doctors not actually knowing much about PCO, like in general, is it something that most people are going to have to chase up on? Because it's very, like, is it that type of thing?
1: I, I think so. And again, this is something Amy might be able to comment on. And I'm basing this on admittedly a limited sample size, but I will speak very generally. If you can, get a female doctor. And I realize, like, I know that can come across, well, depending on who I'm talking to, it can come across the wrong way. Because unfortunately, there is still a mentality among male physicians to be extremely dismissive of women's issues. We still have, and it's different, there's, you know, with every new generation, it gets a little bit better. There is still quite a bit of the hysteria, you're histrionic, it's all in your head, because they do a basic set of blood work and go, hey, everything's normal. You're not. pretty, that's pretty much of my
4: what, office. That's pretty much right. what my doctor, that's pretty much what my doctor said to me in my late teens. I, um, yeah. Yeah, I went to him and said, because like, I, I, I grow sort of like facial hair and, and hair that really shouldn't be in places that it should be on technically a woman. Right. Um, and and, yeah. and, and I, I, as a teenager, it, 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 yeah, it concerned me massively. I didn't really know what it was. I, I had absolutely no idea, to be fair. So I went to right. the doctor and he basically told me it was a cosmetic issue. Not right, a medical issue,
1: and 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 I don't know if they you know don't know. Obviously, a general practitioner can only you know they know a little about a lot. And on the one hand, like it is you know they can't be expected to be an expert on everything. But they it also helps if they're aware of that, because there's also at least in American medical schools, and I'm sure there's a little bit of that. Ah, you're a doctor, you have the last word, you know everything about everything, even when you don't and there is there's just that tend- i had a, a yeah. good female friend and this was when she was younger she went to a male physician and she was having blood her urine and he goes no you're wrong you're just menstruating basically he knew better than she did what she was and he, she goes no look i know the difference and he she's like i know what one is versus the other And he goes fine go get Go give me an example. And he's like, okay, you were right. But he was just prepared to dismiss her out of, you know, out of hand. And at least with a female physician, they will be, I don't know if empathetic's the right word or understanding's even the right word, but at least they have some sort of context for it in a way that, like I said, I, I had to start from scratch when I researched my book. I can read all the theory. I can read all the research. I can understand it on an intellectual level. It's not something I will ever, ever be able to understand in a real world context. Although I maintain, if you could give men a menstrual cycle for two or three months, oh my God, everything would get better. One of my favorite stories, this was from last year, there was, it was a bra company and they made all the male employees wear basically a weighted vest on their chest for like to the first several weeks so that they can at least have some sort of context for what that feels like having and it's not the same i realized to go look this is what having this much extra weight on the front of your body is doing to your posture your neck your back your head like if we do the same thing you've met a menstrual cycle just for a couple months to actually have <laughs> to experience of it it would change the world whatever, this is me, you know, my, 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 but my point of the point of this being that female doctor or, you know, an OBGYN tuned into this will at least be willing to go, okay, we've done this test. Cause again, women are so complicated. I don't think there's any one test that will pick it all up. And as Amy said, it may take you five or six months chasing this down of different diagnoses, but at least hopefully they would know. Cause if you go in and tell a female doctor, look, I'm experiencing cystic acne, oily skin, facial hair, My hygiene is good because I know how to wash my face. The first indicator, the first thought should be, let's check for PCOS because that is a classic symptom, classic cluster of signs of PCOS to at least try to track down what the problem is.
4: Um, I think I'll do that. I think I'll get over to my doctor and ask for a female one and get some professional advice. Yeah, and and I know it's,
0: yeah,
1: And, and I know it is difficult but, and, and and this is, it's a little, you know, the, at the end of the day, like, not that they're our employee, but we're hiring them to essentially do their best for us. And if you feel like your needs are not being tended to, go find somebody else. Yeah. In many cases, I do think women will be better served with a female physician. you know, in in the U.S., which is, of course, a free-for-all in all aspects of everything, there are... almost in every state, depending on what the regulations are. There are, you know, women's health centers, and they can range from very science-based to, let's just say, very non-science-based and leave it at that. Like, there can be a lot of, you know, it's true in in men's health, too, lately because of men's hormone replacement. There's a lot of quacky doctors showing up that are just like, yeah, you want testosterone? Cool, we'll, we'll hell, you can get diagnosed for that online and they'll send you steroids or (laughs) Niagara. Uh, or whatever (laughs) but you know find one that at least is attuned to women's health issues get referrals from women that have gone through this to get sent to a good one they will at least know where to start yeah to try to you know another good example and maybe there's some women listening to this that have gone through that uh low thyroid status much more common in women vastly undiagnosed and it is the single most undiagnosed cause of depression in women. And a lot of this is because traditionally trained doctors will look at your blood work and go, it's normal. It's all in your head.
7: Now, in a very
1: real sense, depression is all in your head, but that trivializes what it is. Yeah. I mean, I've dealt with clinical depression. Like I'm saying, I'm being a little bit facetious with that. But they'll go, your blood, your blood test is normal. And they and they, they will treat you as a set of numbers. Rather than you going, this is what I am personally experiencing. And they'll go, eh, looks normal, you're done. And the UK, it's even worse because UK has some very strict and what I consider very silly guidelines on what can and can't be prescribed for thyroid medication. But you will find endless forums online of women who had low normal thyroid status and felt terrible when they found someone willing to even to get to high average thyroid status, life-changing. The point of this all being that you have to find a doctor that will treat you as a person rather than as a set of lab tests.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Like, you know, with PCOS, with higher testosterone levels, are they um, high enough to have a significant impact on muscle building? Oh yes,
1: uh, very much so. And I do also, I, I see a couple Kim's got a question about PCOS that I don't want, I, I want to get to. Um, yes, so women with PCOS that have the, the high testosterone type, which is the most common, like 75% of women with PCOS will have that. It does give them an advantage athletically. And this is one of those cases where it can be sort of a mixed bag. It causes a lot of potential negatives, menstrual cycle dysfunction, insulin resistance, But you recover better from training. You gain muscle mass. They tend to have higher bone mineral density. Women with PCOS are vastly uh, overrepresented at the Olympic level compared to their occurrence in uh, the general population because they Mm. tend to have an advantage in that regards. They also, as frequently as not, tend to be found in certain types of sports that are more... Uh, they tend to revolve revolve more about like aggression. Like I've watched women's rugby and it's terrifying. I mean, in a good way, like don't, like, I know I tend to, I tend to use some sort of my odd uh, verbiage for this. Like, but watching a female rugby player get dumped on her head, get a concussion and be like, I'm back in. That takes a certain psychology and realistically, Not all women have that. And on Hmm. average, I think you're going to see that more commonly with women that have elevated testosterone levels. At least in 10 or 20 years ago, the women who wanted to get into powerlifting, throw shot put, sort of those power sports that were predicated on aggression, muscle mass, lifting heavy, tended to come from a PCOS background, not universally. By the same token, if you're going to look at a sport like Figure skating, ballet, gymnastics that tends to have a, again, this is a very loaded word, you know, more feminine characteristics. And hopefully everyone knows how I'm using that in a very literal sense. Generally, or even look at the physique sports, the the women that want to basically put on the sparkle bikini and the heels and go do women's, you know, generally not going to come from a PCOS, just not wired that way on average. So, yeah, absolutely. Women with elevated testosterone. As a coach, when you get one of those athletes in the weight room, they are frequently built different anatomically. They may have a little bit narrower hips because of this. They're built to push big weights. They tend to have the mentality to just like, yeah, I want to squat the world. Whereas other women may not be wired like that. I'm not saying that either one is better or worse. But mm. even from a coaching standpoint or training standpoint, if you're wired to that, if you're like, yeah, this is – I want to go do heavy fives in the deadlift or – like. There is, I'd say it's more common than not, but absolutely PCOS women have an advantage.
0: Yeah, at least you got a Paul of me PCOS is seen as like, a, obviously it's not ideal, but like it's good to hear this call some kind of training positive.
1: Well, and, and that gets into context, right? If you're a woman that is having health issues, fertility issues, wanna have children, it could be a very big negative. Yeah. Female you know, athletes, it can be very big positive, and that of course can change throughout the life. Your life, you know, if you're having sort of negative health effects, birth control is first line treatment. Now that won't help with fertility issues, of course, but it at least treats some of the health stuff. Metformin, which uh, might be called glucophage, uh, I don't. Again, countries all differ in this. Is also first uh, first line treatment. It improves insulin sensitivity. It addresses that issue, along with even losing small amounts of weight. All of that can improve fertility. It's also a set of supplements called myo and chiro-inositol. I don't know if you ever looked into those, which seem to have these profound benefits to improve uh, reproductive function, health. Um, they do, when I did tell, we'll talk about how hormones work. It's like a hormone binds and then magic happens. And then the good stuff happens. The inositol, these supplements, they, they work in the magic happens part of it. I don't know what's, I kind of don't care; it doesn't matter. But they're improving something. Um, so yeah, if you're a female athlete and want, you may not want to treat the PCOS because your testosterone is helping. And if you're a woman who's suffering health effects or wants children, it may very well be getting worth getting treated for. It. So it just
0: depends. Yeah, I'm yeah. saying That's good.
1: Clear that um, okay. I think.
0: So, what are we at?
1: Uh, so Kim asks because a couple of might see the questions, but it looks like. Oh, Amy did add, I take tryptophan for my sleep. Ten Ten would recommend. Yeah, yeah. It was seriously. It was one batch out of Japan in like 1977, and they decided it was dangerous for the next four decades. Um. So Kim, uh, does Kim want to come on video, or I can just address the question? Oh,
0: Kim, Kim, Kim was the one to just. I think Kim was the one to just ask that wasn't it, Kim. Was yeah, I, oh, just, it was the, yeah it was, I just. Oh,
1: she's US undiagnosed. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, no, you um, meant, yeah. You
4: did mention something about cancer with the HRT. I'm nowhere near HRT age yet but um i had vulva cancer so i just wondered if that okay. would have an effect in the future it really is is something i'd look into anyway but i just yeah it, it's, it, that,
2: it's it's
1: really breast cancer so back in the day they did this big study where they took postmenopausal women it's like the women's health initiative i want to say and like six months in they were like we got to stop the study people are dying and they're getting breast cancer and like they, they and that sort of caused breast, hormone replacement to kind of go out of Favor and then they reanalyzed the data. And what they did is they took women between 50 and like 80, and then they just took them all and put them in a group. When they went back and divided it up, it was like, okay, if you go on hormone replacement in the first five or 10 years after menopause, there's no increased health risk, but beyond a certain age, it becomes a problem. All right, okay. The issue being, well, no, sorry, this is just a long way of getting to your question. The <laughs> issue was breast cancer. And breast cancer is a lot of things going on, but one of the causes or one of the risk factors is lifetime exposure to estrogen. And the issue was that, okay, let's say you hit start menstruating at 14. And I know it's even younger now frequently. You're exposed to estrogen throughout your entire reproductive life till 50, right? So there's 36 years. You then go on estrogen replacement. There's another potentially five or 10 years. And if you are prone to breast cancer, meaning that you could have a family history. You could have that BRCA mutation if you've been tested for that. The risk of maintaining estrogen levels is there. That will potentially increase the risk of breast cancer. Now, if women don't go on hormone replacement, their risk of heart disease, heart attacks, diabetes goes up. And I mean this very genuinely, that A, I'm glad as a man, it's not an easy, like. It's not an easy choice for women because there are benefits and there are negatives. I'm of the general opinion that the benefits outweigh the negatives outside of the one breast cancer thing. But honestly, I'm glad I don't have to make the choice because it's not a trivial one for the woman's second half of her lifespan. But I don't, to my knowledge, it's purely breast cancer. That's very much an estrogen driven issue.
2: Okay, brilliant. Um
1: So yes. Yeah. Uh,
2: Thank you.
1: <laughs> absolutely um someone
0: prima. Oh, christine go ahead christine yeah, christine's gone she's in and out so when when she's in again I'll, yeah. I'll bring your question up um prima next one i don't know
1: what climbs is so prima don't be please don't ever don't be embarrassed i know well this stuff is not talked about as i was writing this book even after i wrote the book were like We're like, I've never, I don't know this. I wasn't taught this. There's a huge negative stigma that still surrounds all of this for any number of reasons. And actually, just as a general comment, I read this really interesting paper. PMS symptoms, there is a relationship between the environment you grew up in in terms of how much negative, how many negative things, whatever the the, the greater the negative attitudes towards PMS and menstruation that you grew up in the more likely your, the worse your PMS symptoms are likely to be. Because as much as there is a biology to this, all pain, they call it the psychosocial model of pain, right? Pain is only, it is all perceived in the brain, right? Some people have the high pain tolerance. This kind of goes to the cramping thing. Eh, a little bit of pain. And others, depending on their background and who they are, can experience pain at a much greater level. And in terms of PMS and the symptoms women experience, The more negativity they were fed when they were younger, the more likely they are to have severe PMS symptoms because psychologically they've been told any number of, I mean, y'all know the horrible stuff way better than I do from go back in the day, women are unclean and this and that and the other. And I mean, this is long held for, you know, anyway, my point of this being that there is still a stigma around it and there shouldn't be. So please don't be embarrassed.
0: I'll stop talking. Yes. (laughs) But <laughs> well, pretty much do you wanna, do you wanna come on okay. um, Yeah, and
7: yeah? um, that's actually really it, it is actually quite interesting that you've said that, love, because um so I am from a uh, South Asian background and actually growing up the narrative is, is is like if you are, you know, if it is that time of the month, you're not supposed to do like religious activities yep. and you're not supposed to like you've got all these like superstitions attached to it. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um I know I mean I've 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 still got friends who also from South Asian background, they don't even go in the kitchen and wow. they don't do like certain work, you know, work that yeah. is like related to their religious duties and stuff that they, they, they do on a daily basis. So, um, yeah, that narrative is still, oh, yes. it's still quite common. Um, I've, I've, I've actually found it quite hard to break away from that. Sure. Um, just even like say, for example, we we're, we're not, okay, this is a bit morbid, but we're not even supposed to attend funerals if you're on your period. I miss my granddad's, granddad's funeral because I was on my period. Like it's, it's just insane. So, um, it's actually very interesting that you have said that. Um, because yeah, I, I, I get all sorts of bloody symptoms like running up. And during when I am like on my period, like I do get a really, really heavy period. And what I noticed in the, past is that yeah I do have these episodes where you know your bowel movements are a bit bonkers and I can sat on the bog for like five or six times in you know really short space of time and so it's just got me thinking especially it, with all the tracking that I've been doing like are there particular food groups that I can have and I'm, there's one book I've been following as closely as I can um called In The Flow where they do give like a table of food groups um, okay. But yeah, I just, I was really curious to see what, what can we do to help any or prevent bloating and what foods we should be eating when we are suffering like, you know, irregular bowel movements or, you know, diarrhea type of movements and stuff like that. So yeah, that's what I was interested in. Uh,
1: okay, yes. Um, hang on, I was, the, the constipation one, I had to just do a quick search, I was listening. Uh, yep, yep, um, right, right, uh, yep, okay. Uh, yeah, because a lot, a lot of the stuff on this does come from menopausal data, but to a first approximation, that fourth week of the cycle, that PMS week, when estrogen is dropping, they're similar enough. Some women actually will experience what amount of hot flashes during week four, which is because estrogen is dropping from a, a medium level to essentially back to zero before it starts back up again. So pretty much this is all, all always related. So you actually, let me address your first question because that's the easier, easier one of was what you, you typed. Why is it women get bloating? So women's water weight can vary enormously throughout the monthly cycle. And it, different women are different. Some women get big changes and other women not so much. And it has to do with the changing hormones. And in the fourth week of the cycle, what it is, estrogen and progesterone falling cause the body to hold more sodium or salt. That's the short version of it for a bunch of boring reasons. And if you're on either have a high sodium intake or a low potassium intake or both, tends to cause water retention. So that's really where the bloating is coming from uh, by and large. Unless you're talking about, are you talking about stomach bloating, like food, gastric more so than water?
7: I wouldn't even know the difference actually.
1: Well, I I
7: know I'm pregnant every time I get to
1: that. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, we, that's, you get the food belly. Um, so there is, there is one thing and I'm not, I think this is when it happens. Women's cervix, cervix actually tips. Women also have to experience low back pain in the fourth week of the cycle. And it's because actually stuff is rotating. I don't know exactly why I'm sure it's all related to getting ready to expel the endometrium and start menstruation and, makes it easier, but all of that changes. And so this, pa- the, um, so this is a paper, just a review paper uh, with the exciting title, "Do fluctuations in Ovarian Hormones, fact, Gastrointestinal Symptoms in Women. Oh, this is IBS, but same thing. Falling estrogen seems to increase gastrointestinal symptoms. Like uh, this does seem to be a thing. Um, here's the better one. Um, yeah it I mean yes the answer I think the short version of this is that it's absolutely related to falling hormones They couldn't tell you exactly why other than clearly I mean your experience and everything genuinely if it's going to go south there's increased migraine risk there's all kinds of issues there's even some interesting stuff that's like the best time if you're going to try to quit smoking or drinking or do drugs it's that's the worst week to do anything sort of yeah. like we talked about. Dopamine levels are down, serotonin levels are down. Either you're gonna start a new diet or exercise program right after menstruation is the best time. Those first two weeks when estrogen is kind of helping with things is generally the best, best part of the month. So yeah, it is. So what can be done about it? Um, you could consider you know, eating like lower fiber foods or I mean, digest a little bit more easily, won't keep you full. I think honestly, in this case, probably the, the best thing I can suggest is that when estrogen, if, it, if it's falling estrogen that's causing this, and it generally is, or gen, sorry, generally is, this is a place where replacing some of the estrogen signaling that's being lost is probably worth helping, worth considering. Now, not something you can, I mean, you're not gonna put in a week's worth of estrogen as a hormone, an option here, and a friend of mine who suffers from really severe PMS, I had her doing this to good effect and it does seem to help is, so soy protein uh, contains something called phytoestrogens and these are naturally occurring compounds that mimic estrogen in a woman's body. Um, I'm sure y'all remember, this was probably you know, was at least 10 years ago, there's this big thing that they noticed that ah, women in Asian cultures don't seem to have some of the same health risks, and it was tied to their soy food intake. And then the Western world went nuts and everybody started eating way too many phytoestrogens, way too much soy protein, and that caused its own set of problems because what they didn't realize is that in Asian cultures, the daily intake of soy foods is actually not very large. It's like 10 to 15 grams a day on average. It's not like they're eating soy, you know, like it's going out of style. And it turns out with these phytoestrogens, That a fairly moderate dose increases estrogen signaling just enough. And for soy protein, I would recommend one serving of 25 to 30 grams per day is plenty. Like that's you, probably one scoop of soy protein powder, maybe one big serving of soy foods like tofu or whatever the other soy soybean, anyway, raw soybeans. If you want to go the supplement route, you can get isolated phytoestrogens. And the dose is 100 milligrams, 500 milligrams per day. And I will misspell these. And the two phytoestrogens are, I think that's right. And I think that's the other one. I might be missing an I in there. Um, doing that during that week to maintain a little bit of estrogen signaling um, is worth trying um, because this this certainly does seem to be. Uh, hormonally driven Um, and it is does seem to really be due to uh, falling estrogen so I think that would at least be worth trying maybe you know a little bit low fiber Well, it's weird like fiber does tend to push stuff through the gut but it also produces more poo so I could see it going both ways in this regards Um, where high-fiber foods might move things along better but it might make it worse because you've got more residue that isn't moving through as well. So I could see either one possibly working.
7: That's interesting. Yes, yeah, really, that is really, really helpful because. OK. Yeah, I can j- just do a bit of planning. But can I just, whilst I've got your attention, if I can just get another, another question in? Yeah, in terms of like PMS symptoms, Is brain fog a thing? Like, is a brain fog related to, because I feel so much of it. Like last week I felt so insanely focused and I was getting through my work week. And I don't know if I've just gone through ovulation, but I've just gone through a complete drop. And I know what I need to get on with, and I'm just not doing it.
1: And yeah just, and that's again yeah. uh, I sort of and mentioned that in the context of like experiences
7: way, way too hard.
1: yeah and and that's just again that's falling estrogen I mentioned that in the context of hormone <laughs> replacement for menopause that estrogen impacts on brain function enormously and that is a very common report uh, for yeah, women okay. you know that that again not all women experience it but the women who do it is significant and actually you, you might Again, same friend with the big PMS symptoms. She just, yeah, everything just, there's a loss of clarity and she loses her words. And, uh, very, you know, there's, there's a very real effect. And I think the soy protein or the phytoestrogens might end up having an effect on more than just uh, the bloating and the constipation.
0: Because
1: okay. um, even that's something that I never really found a good answer to. It's like, okay why do some women experience profound symptoms and other ones experience none and i don't know if it's a due to the to the levels of the hormone if it's you know psychological like we talked about like obviously constipation hard to argue that that's a psychological issue although i'm sure there's some freudians who would probably do so um but is it Receptor, is it the way, just her body's receptor numbers? I I don't really know, other than if it affects you, it affects you, which is really kind of more important than the mechanism. But certainly that falling estrogen seems to be really at the center of almost all of it. So finding a way, even a little bit more estrogen signaling, I think will go a long way. Pima, does
0: does that help? I think she's lost signal, maybe. I don't
5: know.
0: Yeah, Prima, Sorry, I'm, signal. I'm, I'm smiling at Vanessa's
1: comments, uh, who mentioned estrogen is made from yams. I, yeah, they found a way, they used to synthesize DHEA from that. Thank For some you
7: reason very, yams very
0: yams much. Say again. I think, <laughs> I think Prima's um, signal is like, time.
1: yeah. Um, and then oh. Vanessa commented, presumably, this was in my comment about men having a menstrual cycle. Yeah. said men wouldn't last one month. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, so Claudia left, but she asked, sorry to bring up IUD again, but can Marina increase risk of endometriosis? And the answer is that once you're into medical stuff, that's out of my wheelhouse. Um, mm-hmm. I can certainly, I got someone I can ask about that. Um, so. Yeah.
0: Well, I think uh, if anyone's got any general questions, you know, to ask Lyle, like outside of maybe this type of stuff, nutrition, metabolic rate, fat loss, we get like we can do another 10 minutes, maybe, Lyle. And yeah. then, um, yeah, no, absolutely, I got time. Um, who do I know here that's got Jess? I know you've got some questions. <laughs>
1: um, oh. Actually, that's a really good. How do you diagnose the root cause of a weight loss stall? Is there a decision tree? Yes.
0: Jacks, where are you, Jack? you gonna come on on the on the audio. Where is she? There she is. Oh, she won't come on. I know it. She she's basically gone through a, a huge transformation. Lost you know sixty six pounds. Um, wow. That's in amazing. terms of in terms of backgrounds and. Uh, yeah, the margin is probably coming from that maybe, you know, losing so much weight, like where would you, for, for context, Lyle, so you know, so you lost a lot of weight. Okay. Oh, obviously, yeah. So, uh,
1: where to start on this one? So, weight loss styles can obviously happen for a number of reasons, right? Now, one, as we lose weight and body fat, the body starts to adapt. Um, one of the big reasons is you're simply smaller. Smaller body burns less calories at rest, burns less calorie during activity. Um, you're eating less, which has a very small effect on energy, uh, something called the thermic effect of food. Uh, frequently, as we lose weight because of hormonal reasons, frequently our meat goes down, we move around less. Not universally, but it may take more of a conscious effort. But there's another factor metabolic rate, energy expenditure is adapting, and this is for hormonal reasons. And it's, they call it, it's the adaptive component of metabolic rate. So, like, let's say that if you lost a certain amount of weight, and we would predict that your energy expenditure would go down by hundred calories a day. And then we measure it, it's 150. And that 50 calories is the adaptive component. So basically that causes that any, at, at any given body weight, well, let me, back, let me rephrase that. So let's say you have someone who's naturally at 160 pounds and then someone who diets to 160 pounds. The person who diet down will have a slightly lower energy expenditure than the person who was normally there because of these hormonal adaptations. Isn't that funny? Sorry, I'm, huh? I'm looking, I'm just watching. Sorry, I can't help but watching the videos and i I got food in my teeth or something? <laughs> anyway, um, so that, that's certainly part of one, right? This is also part of why whenever we do weight loss math, the predicted weight loss and the real world weight loss are never the same, right? Unless you do the math, you're like, okay, I'm gonna burn 500 calories extra and I should lose a pound a week, and what happens, uh, you know, you should do that, and what happens is this. Because as you get smaller, burn less calories, as your metabolism adapts, that can be part of it. Um, another part of it, stalls are just normal. It's very unusual to lose weight consistently, you know, week to week to week. Women have an additional factor, which is the menstrual cycle due to the, those fluctuations in water weight that I mentioned. And the typical pattern, generally body weight will be the lowest, maybe two to three days after menstruation on average. Typically goes up a little bit before ovulation. Again, the body's holding a little bit more salt. If you lower sodium intake and raise potassium, that can offset some of that. Tends to go back down a week three, and then usually the worst week is week four. And women can gain, I mean, couple kilos, easily. Some gain more, some gain none, it just depends. And you know, clothes fit tighter, feet, ankles get swollen, like it is significant. So one thing women have to be aware of if they have a sort of a standard menstrual cycle is trying to compare your body weight week to week to week to week is a non-starter. Because let's say you're losing a pound a week and so week one, your weight's down a pound. And in week two, you're holding three pounds of water weight. Well, it'll look like you gained two pounds. And you'll go, screw this. Scott doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm doing everything right. My body weight's up two pounds. I'm done. Then week three, it'll go back down. And then in week four, it might. So it can look like your diet's not working over that month if you're cycling. And what I recommend women do is you have to compare the same week to the same week. Week one to week one, week two to week two, week three to week three, week four just stay off scale. Really, nothing good can come of it, generally. <laughs> um, and what you should and you should see the trend week to week, right? So let's say you're whatever, 160 pounds week one, 163 week two, 162 week three, and then forget week four. If you lose a pound, I would expect week one to go to 159, week two to go to 162 from 163 week three to go from 162 to 161. Like I would expect that one pound to sort of propagate across the month on average. So that's one issue is measuring too quickly. There's another one, one of the big ones, and this is just a reality is mistracking food. We're all bad at it. We all underestimate our true food intake. You're not measuring really meticulously. It's very easy to make mistakes in food intake. Or we have days where we overeat for whatever reason. I'm not saying, don't mishear me. I'm not saying, ah, oh, you're cheating on your diet, you're breaking your diet. Like it's just, this is part of the norm. That to me is always the first the first place to check. So well, A, let's define a stall. What defines a weight loss stall? For women, in general, I would say if you've gone more than three weeks with no real change, that's probably indicative that, that you've stalled, right? Frequently people will just stall for three weeks and then they'll see a big drop. It's very normal. i have all experienced it. Week three, you're just like, screw this. I'm doing everything right. Get my money back from Scott because forget that guy. And then you wake up one morning and you've dropped like, you know, two kilos overnight. It's just weird. And it happens. Water retention. Women have more issues. So yeah, if you've gone three, maybe even four weeks, no change, I would say yes. You have hit a true stall or a plateau. Now we need to find out what it is. First step, do a spot check on your food intake. Because that's probably one of the most common issues. Uh, it only needs to be two or three days. I don't know how much Scott has y'all, you know, keeping a food record and a food diary at some point in the process. It mm-hmm. is A, the biggest pain in the, pain in the rear end you will ever go through. It is just the, the worst task you can ever do. And it is the single most educational one you will ever do. Because yeah. in the modern era, nobody has any idea what proper food portions are. Come to America, you'll be blown away. Our food (laughs) portions are phenomenal. I went to the UK a bunch of years ago, went to a restaurant, ordered, and they brought me this plate, and I just looked at it and was like, so where's the rest of it? Because (laughs) I'm used to being served triple that at any typical American restaurant. Nobody is good at this. So the first thing would be spot check your food intake, because little especially as you're getting towards the end and the body is fighting back harder, small small mistakes can add up, right? And it's typically like, ah, nibble here, nibble there. Peanut butter is for some reason a big, big problem for a lot of people. And, you know, start to overpack that tablespoon, that spoon a little bit, start to lick the back and it can't be that many calories. And you add it up and you're like, wow, I'm 400 calories over my target goal. So assuming you've experienced a true plateau, that would really be the first one. Um, if that's fine and your activity also is you know, where, it need, where, where it has been, because people tend to overestimate calorie expenditure, though I suspect that within the context of what Scott is doing, that's usually people that, aren't, that don't have someone kind of leading the process. There's a yep. great study that people do like 30 minutes of activity. They burn like 200 calories. They asked them how much they thought they burned. They were like 900. And <laughs> they ate more because of it. Because people yeah. have been told, oh, walk for 30 minutes. And you'll, it's like, yeah, I wish. It burns like 150 calories. So that's really the first place. Because I'd say that's where the most common mistake is. If your food intake is in place, water retention is really the next big one. But some of that is just a, a time thing. Like I said, it's, un, it's atypical for people to retain water for very extended periods, but for women, you've got the menstrual cycle issue. One thing I bet a lot of folks, uh, y'all listening, have, have, have experienced this, whether with Scott or just in general, right? You're dieting, doing everything right, calories are low, you're doing your activity, you're stuck, and you finally go, you know what, forget this. You have a day and you skip your exercise, maybe eat a little bit more, and you wake up and you've lost two kilos. There's something that can happen when we get a little bit, shall we say, too intense about the process. Dieting is stressful, sticking to this is all stressful and we are in a much more stressful world than we have been. The world is stressful to begin with and now with what's going on globally, it's adding to that. That can cause hormonal changes, that can cause water retention and frequently just having like that relaxing day where you don't train, raise calories a little bit and just kind of chill, often that can cause the water to drop.
4: Yeah.
1: So water retention be the next one. Now, you can try to manipulate those. And this is something to consider. Um, back in the day, some athletes still do this, but bodybuilders, they thought they were holding water, they would do what's called a water flush. And basically what you do is you raise your water intake, you like triple it for two or three days. And this causes some of the hormones involved in water retention to go down. Then when you cut your water, you frequently see this big flushing of water that you may have been holding. So that is an option if you feel like that. And again, I would, say, I would even argue that women are probably more attuned to water attention than men because you've gone through it to one degree or another since you got your period. You know what that feels like and how it feels different than like real body weight. That would be number yeah. two. Then the next the next one is simply that okay, your body has adapted. Um, and I see Jax has a follow-up question that I will get to a follow because that's a good follow-up. They like said, as we lose fat, as we lose weight, as we get smaller, as our body adapts, eventually you come back into balance. What was a deficit is either longer a deficit or such a tiny deficit that it's insignificant. So again, so like let's say here's your initial energy expenditure, 2,000 calories, whatever it is. When you start, you create that 500 calorie a day deficit. Over time, your energy expenditure will go down and down and eventually you'll hit balance and that'll be a plateau. At that point, you have to create a further deficit, increase your activity, you have to de- decrease your food intake, some combination of the two eventually reach point that you can only reduce your calories so far because you have to eat something or activity has to go up. But the body, you're just going through these stepwise phases where eventually your body is kind of coming back into balance. <clears throat> and what you, what you can do to sort of offset this, and again, I mean, it's 66 pound loss. Clearly, things worked out well for a, fairly, for a really extended period of time is some people will adjust as they go like ah, every few pounds lost, you know, you add five or 10 more minutes of activity just to kind of try to, to keep, because otherwise that, that pound a week becomes half a pound a week a quarter. Then suddenly you're just losing such a small amount, it can't even be measured. Is you can sort of adjust as you go um, to sort of, to, to, uh, to try to keep that consistent fat loss. But once you stall, you stall. Now it is interesting. So Jack's ads have lost consistently week on week since March at 170 and then the auction ended and I was stuck for five weeks straight. And I don't think those are coincidental in the sense that many people, and I'm one of them, and most of us are, and when we have a very specific goal or a very structured program, we tend to be more, I'll say disciplined for lack of a better word, we're, we're just more focused on it because we are like, okay, especially if it's relatively short term. I've got eight weeks or 12 weeks that I wanna hit this goal and I'm on this specific program. I've got accountability, I've got support, all that's part of sort of doing this as a group. And then when that is over, frequently there is less focus. There is less intensity because that is lost. And that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It simply is. Uh, I was talking to someone a couple of days ago very much like that. She's having trouble and she, when she was doing one of those Peloton bike programs and they do like a Peloton boot camp. She's like, yeah, the eight weeks she was on, boom, her weight dropped and dropped and dropped. But as soon as it ended and she didn't have that very, that structure, she basically plateaued and actually regained a little bit. I'm not saying that's exactly the case, but you're in a situation where you went from having this very specific targeted goal to not. And even to small degrees, you maybe your exercise may have decreased. I'm not saying it did. The intensity may not be there. Diet may not be as locked down because that, that structure is not there. Now, what I would add is this is not necessarily a bad thing. One of the things I've been talking about a lot in the podcast that I think we've failed on is in the fitness industry, a degree weight loss is easy. Everybody can lose weight every study they've ever done. Maintenance is hard. Keeping it off is where we're failing because over the next two or three years, everybody gains it back. Weight loss is, like I said, easy in the sense that everyone can do it. Some of them, there's a number of reasons for this, and this could be another, another topic for another day because I have to talk about this forever, but stabilizing at a current new body weight for some period of time, not a bad thing. For a number of reasons, one is that maintenance takes practice, and if you consider that most people regain weight over time, in a very real way, maintaining is still staying ahead of the game. Because you've been changing exercise habits, eating habits, maintenance for a lot of people also like when you're on a goal, right? When you're dieting, weight loss is a goal. If your goal is to gain weight for athletics or for muscle gain. Weight gain is a goal. Maintenance. This weird, gray, nebulous area because you're not really—it's almost you're trying to avoid something. You're not trying to get to a goal. You're trying to avoid a negative. The psychology is different, and it takes practice to learn how to maintain for you. How to maintain enough activity, and activity tends to be much more important for maintenance than anything else. Maintaining a fairly high amount of activity, and I think 150 minutes a week is the current minimum, um, allows you to eat more again you're smaller you don't get to eat as much food your body has adapted the reality is that you are going to have to restrict your intake to one degree or another unfortunately forever now forever is too hard to think about let's think about it just till it becomes habitual because forever is way too long away so honestly jacks and i realize this may not you know yes i get it you feel like you're not moving forwards I understand that. But maintaining till the next octagon or whatever comes up, or even maintaining to learn what set of behavioral strategies allow you to maintain that, it's not a bad thing in the big picture.
0: No.
1: There's also the issue that once you, when you maintain, so I talked about how the body adapts and metabolic rate adapts and energy expenditure adapts. All those adaptations are worse when you're actively dieting. And many of them reverse when you start, when you maintain for several weeks. Hormones improve, thyroid hormones come back up, metabolic rate comes up. By maintaining, not only are there behavioral benefits, but when you go back to active fat loss, it will actually happen more effectively.
2: Mm-hmm. So I in a
1: sense, I know that doesn't really answer your question, but I do honestly think the big, the big coincidental events is the octagon not being there to give you, like I said, more intensity, focus, but that's not necessarily a bad thing in the short term.
0: Yeah, that's no, good, perfect. Hopefully that's um, Yeah, chance. then the
1: last one from Crystal, um, just, okay. Oh, no, absolutely, like I said, it's not, we don't talk about mains enough, and I wish we did, because that is really the hard part. We know, we know how, I'm gonna go up with my little, little rant to answer the college question, we can we finish up. We know how to get people to lose weight. We've known for 50 years. My grandma knew. She said, Eat more vegetables for your meal. Because grandmas know everything. We don't realize that until we're older, but our grandmas were right. I don't need another study on why fiber is good for weight loss. I don't. We get it. <laughs> truly, we get it. We know at this point they tested every diet that has ever been tested. Once you get a deficit enough protein, The rest of it is negotiable. They all work about the same. Depends on context. How much are you training? What do you like to eat? Bunch of different stuff. We get it. We know how to get weight off people. How do we maintain in the long term? That's a whole separate topic, but it needs to be talked about more because that's really the bigger issue to me.
4: Mm -hmm. I know
1: whatever Scott has y'all doing, clearly it's working. Combining tense weight training, cardio, dietary modification, yeah, there you go, we, we know that. You can optimize it, there's a lot of bad information. However, we know how to do that, making yeah. sure it can be maintained. And I know he does this, I know he is not giving you activity levels that you couldn't sustain to some degree. Because I can do it, I can make you extra four hours a day, six days a week, and that's great in the short term, but long term, probably not gonna work very well. So sustainable strategies in terms of training and diet, key thing. Um, yeah. And like I said, learning to, learning to maintain, it, and it takes practice. You will make mistakes. You will start to regain frequently. Another sub-issue, if you see yourself backsliding, A, you're human, don't worry about it. B, remind yourself, humans do this all the time. I lost 20 pounds, but I regained two, I failed. No, you lost 18, right? A, you have to get past the idea that maintenance is staying at the exact same number for the rest of your life. It Doesn't work that way. There's always fluctuations. What you need to do is set an upper limit above which you won't go, say 1%, one and a half percent of your current body weight. So for Jack's at 170, if your body weight goes up for real two point, two pounds, your tendency will be, oh my God, I failed, I'm regaining a. Or you can go, okay, I know what to do. And you know what to do because you've done it, right? You've lost 66 pounds. You've proven that you know what to do. If you go up a couple pounds, life gets in the way. You know exactly what to do to lose those two or three pounds again. And the sooner you get it, the better, right? Because let's say you die at six months, and then you sort of put on what I call the fat blinders. Suddenly, you gain 15 or 20 pounds back. I'm like, oh, God, I lost three months of progress. I it's going to take me four months to get forget it, I'm just done. Whereas if you catch it at a couple pounds, two weeks, lock it down for two more weeks, boom, be right back to where you started. The key is to catch it early. Yeah, um, but that takes learning and practice. And that's we'll do that. We can talk about that. No, that's a whole separate thing. Okay, does collagen play a role in women's overall health, menstrual cycle, fitness journey? To my knowledge, it doesn't impact menstrual cycle at all. Collagen is just, you know. As I like to call it, just hooves, hooves and horns. Um, well, actually, the way I like to put it, you know, for years when we we're like Jello, totally makes your nails and hair and skin better. Well, your grandma was right; it absolutely does, because again, as I like to put it, helps helps <laughs> us with hooves and horns. Um, collagen protein contains the building blocks of connective tissue, of nails, of hair, even of joints. And for joint health, it can be very valuable. And there's been lots of studies on this for people that may be suffering from some type of osteoarthritis. I train a female powerlifter, and she goes heavy and she's 43, so, you know, not as robust um, as she might. So she takes collagen daily just to make sure that she doesn't get injured. Um, I don't, you know, so overall health, like I said, it will definitely improve that aspect of it. Beyond that, it's just a protein. And it's actually not, it shouldn't be counted with your other protein. It's not really a great protein for anything else, for supporting muscle growth, for general health or any of that stuff. But it's great for joint health and it's great for skin, hair, and nails. And daily dosing is like 10 to 20 grams per day. uh, Thereabouts, it usually mixes pretty well. There's all kinds of different kinds. my lifter gets hers from a company called Bulk Bulk Powders or Bulk Protein or something. Yeah, um, Unfortunately, powders. their new formulation, uh, smells like feet, doesn't taste like feet, but it, it smells like feet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that is something, especially you know, if you've got any sort of uh, joint issues. I did a, a consult female Olympic lifter who's got some joint issues. It's a lot of heavy pounding. I suggested that to her as well. Um, it just gives your body the building blocks to rebuild those tissues in a way that other proteins
4: don't
0: yeah that's good and i want to finish off with um there's like so what i've noticed in the last maybe year or so it's great that you know everybody realizes calorie deficits what you need to lose fat right but now there's people saying if you're in a calorie deficit then you have to lose weight and like people are now getting frustrated when they start uh, say, a new plan within a deficit, they're actually not seeing their weight come down because they're stressed or water retention's going up and masking right. the fat loss. So, like, I'm, I'm not sure, like, is there a way to explain that very simply for these people so they're not getting stressed out at the start of the journey where they're like, I'm in, I'm hitting my macros, I'm in a deficit, but my weight's not coming down?
1: Yeah, it, it is really common. And, like again, women have the, they've got the first issue of the menstrual cycle, and then we put this on top of it, which is, Dieting is a stress, both physically and, and mentally, right? Exercise is a stress, physically, can be mentally. Some people are just carry more stress than others. Um, there's something in, in eating behavior called uh, rigid eaters. They tend to be very black and white about their food intake, very good bad food intake. Um, that can raise a hormone called cortisol. Cortisol is a stress hormone. And when it's elevated chronically, it can cause water retention. And there's also, there is a subtype of dieters, and I won't say it's more common in women, I've seen it plenty enough in men, that get a little too intense about it. And I did this when I was younger, right? So I'm not, talking from like position. I'm not on a high horse. I did it where you're so intense, like must lose weight. You you can usually see them online because they type in all caps with lots of exclamation points. Why am I not losing weight? And you're just like, okay, you need to just like step back, take a breath. And this can all add up. And there's even one search group that refers to dieting as a psychogenic stress. They've seen in some women, they can mentally stress themselves into losing their menstrual cycle. That's mom. Because your, the, the, your body can't separate, all stress is the same physiologically to your body, whether it's exercise stress, diet stress, psychological stress. Humans are the only animal that can mental ourselves into health problems by worrying about taxes, money, relationships, or inevitable mortality, like other animals don't think this way. And all of this can add up to this chronic stress profile that can cause water retention. And then what happens? Okay, I'm dieting, training, totally locked in, not losing weight. I'm going to train harder and diet harder. It becomes this very feed-forward cycle. Most frequently what is better is, and I mentioned this, some women do it. Some people just do it proactively. I've been dieting two weeks. Nothing's happening. Screw this. They eat normally for a day and don't go work out, and boom, they drop three pounds overnight. And in my experience, they then go back to dieting and training like maniacs. It's very, very, very hard to get folks out of this pattern. And even myself, I went from when I was younger. As I got older, the less stressed mentally I got about the diet, the better it worked. As weird yeah. it, like, not to mention that being so intense, like, when you get stressed out or when you get overly stressed or emotionally stressed, that can cause binge eating, that can, there's a whole other separate set of issues. If you got train you know, comfort foods and all this other stuff and add that to women's hormone levels. And I will maintain, even before Corona, women in the modern world are not only exposed to more stress than men on average, but unprecedented levels of stress. Because we've gotten to the point, right? The, the world has changed so much that not only are the normal stresses, right? You've got family stress, you have relationship stress. You, you, if you have children, you not only have to take care of the child, but you gotta take care of the big child. Um, I'm sure y'all know what I'm referring to. When women are dieting, if you don't have a supportive partner and you have children or you have a family, many women end up cooking three different meals. It's, It's very atypical, most, the modern just finances have to have two jobs or have to have a dual income family just to afford to live these days so women are frequently who are dieting and trying to go through this process are in a situation where i mean i've known some they're like i get up at 4 a.m because it's the only time i can do my cardio or 5 a.m then get the kids ready for school go work all day figure try to factor in my meals go home might have to you know realistically, most of the household duties are still kind of pinned on women for right or for wrong. Well, for wrong, do that, make dinner, get in my weight workout, and then try to get a decent night's sleep and nobody's getting enough sleep. And it makes the whole process harder because that can all add up to these stalls, to this water retention. And it's not universal. And it's very easy to say, try not to be so stressed. And that's really useless advice. (laughs) in 2020 just go just don't be stressed like yeah that's great we are currently watching the world go down in flames um i've got a friend you know 12 year old daughter school at home so that's a whole luckily she works at home people with three kids how do you deal with three kids going to school virtually in the modern it's just it's a nightmare and it's that much worse it can make it that much harder so like if you can find stuff and i know this is trite and silly but it's true like just an outlet where you can have 30 minutes of time to yourself to whatever relaxation activities the obnoxious way i used to put this was when i ran into those really overly tense dieters was like look you don't need to diet harder you need to whatever get drunk get high get laid whatever is going to cause you to relax Regardless, and like I said, this, that's just me being obnoxious because that's who, you know, but whatever it is, that relaxation activity alone, and you'll wake up and you'll have dropped the water. If you need to take a day off, if you, I don't know how Scott does things like, you know, bringing calories up to maintenance, frequently that does it. Just bringing calories to the day's maintenance increasing, can decrease cortisol levels, can cause water to drop and like I said, women have far more issues with all of this because of how their bodies respond, but anything you can do to facilitate that. Yeah. Um, one of the coaches I know, he works with more physique competitors, you know, extreme levels of leanness, but as he started using more frequent maintenance days, even one a week, two a week, where they diet for four or five days. And he said that's basically eliminated the water retention issue um, for most of his competitors because he like said women's bodies fight back harder. Add all those other factors, diet stress, exercise stress, life stress, environment stress, and this adds up to a very sort of bad situation. Um, so finding any sort of stress release outlet. Um, yeah. Me, I like I so. bath candles and Enya. That's how I like to <laughs> the same <time>. sorry. Dido <laughs> might be a better example. That's my silly, you know, a little, a little me time. Um, so, so yes, but it is, it's a very real thing. Again, not everybody experiences it, but if you do, your experience is your experience. And yeah. learning about re- being aware of it, realizing that, okay, maybe if I just take a day and maybe skip my training, just give my body a little bit of a break, it can go a really long way. Because when women yeah. get it locked into that forward cycle of I got to train a diet even harder, that can cause a lot of problems down the road. They eventually lose their menstrual cycle, that can cause some really long-term issues. Again, these are things men do not experience. So when you see men going like, yeah, I just go on an extreme diet for a week, they can pull that off in a way that many women often can. not
0: Yeah, 100%. I think you've covered the last question, but Claudia can add in an extra exercise cause a weight loss stall. Well, it can cause yeah. increased water, like water retention which yeah, it could cause.
1: There's something else loss. I would mention. This is something I observed very early on when I was training people in my 20s. And I tended to work with um, women in their 30s and 40s, just as a, just that was generally my population. And for reasons I am still totally unclear on, they would start training at a very you know, basic level, hopefully changing their diet when they weren't doing it to very extreme levels. And over the first three to four weeks, literally nothing would happen. And I don't know why to this day. But then by week eight, when we would remeasure, there would always be, you know, they would be up two, three, four pounds of muscle, down three, four pounds of body fat. But there was this weird delay in women's bodies. And I don't know, maybe it was menstrual cycle dynamics that I was just measuring at the wrong times. Maybe it's because the changes were too small to show up on the, I don't know why, but it is something to be aware of. There's also the issue that in terms of body weight, frequently, if you're starting with resistance training, you may be losing fat and gaining a little bit of muscle at the same time. And that will offset the weight loss. Um, there's actually, there's a, a study that years ago that gets cited a lot going, oh, women don't lose weight, but men do. And they took men and women and they trained them for a half marathon over six months. So just a ton of running. end you know of the study, the men had lost two pounds, hooray. The women had lost one pound. But the way statistics work, they were like, the women didn't lose any weight. I'm like, neither of them lost any weight. Two pounds over six months is an irrelevancy. However, when they looked at body composition, muscle gain and fat loss, it was basically the same. The women gained four or five pounds of muscle and lost six pounds of fat. So it was only a one pound weight loss. And the men were, so the women lost the same amount of fat. They gained the same amount of muscle, but by looking only at body weight, they sort of missed the big picture. But old research, they didn't know nothing about nothing. Um, or the people reading this don't know what, they're like, oh, they only lost a pound, who cares? Um, pound over six months, you need to get a new coach. Uh, but anyway, so that is the other thing to realize is the early stages of training. There's often a redistribution and you will see differences in clothes fitting, inches, I guess, centimeters, whatever those are. Um, you know, etc. But what does invariably happen, women aren't gonna gain a ton of muscle. Most uh, three to four pounds over the first three or four months, which is enough to have in a visual. So what, but what may happen, so that you may, let's say you lose four pounds of fat, gain three, four pounds of muscle. Body weight's the same. You're not gonna gain a ton more muscle, which means your body fat and weight will start dropping. But there is often this weird delay built in on top of everything else going on.
0: Yeah. Well, we can get into the next episode of this, Lyle. Yeah. I think uh, I think we've covered a lot tonight. I think uh, we've got Q&As every day, basically running in, <laughs> like a training one. So uh, people oh, yeah, are taking awesome. in a lot of information. So, yeah. Um, thanks, everyone, for ch- showing up. And yeah, I'm thank sure, you. sure we'll um, not listen to me babble. No lie, you've been awesome again. So insightful, I think. If anyone's got follow-on questions and obviously, like, get them ready and then we'll just go into them next time. Um, so, yeah. Thanks, everyone. Good. Time to go to bed in yeah. the UK. Lyle, I'll, we'll yeah, touch base on the rugby one next week now. We're good. All right, y'all. Have a great night. You're in
1: good hands. Scott, Scott's a good man. I, I take fun. back about half of what I said about
0: <laughs> Thanks, Lyle. All
1: right. Cheers, guys. Good night, y'all. Tada.